0: Volt Talk Shows is back. Unleashed, unabridged, uncensored, and unbelievable. Only on Sputnik Radio. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. The untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio.
1: Welcome to the mother of all talk shows, the Open University of the Airwaves, the College of Knowledge. Well, there are no tuition fees and you are positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher A terrorist running amok on London Bridge in the middle of a British general election. It's deja vu all over again. We'll be asking the questions everyone should be asking and some people should be answering about where he came from, how he got there, both literally and metaphorically. And on the eve of Donald Trump's arrival in London, in the middle of a general election. What could possibly go wrong? We'll be talking to the great Lee Camp Redacted about the NATO summit that Trump has arrived to grace with his presence. And as Boris Johnson blunders through yet another week of the British general election, saying things that no one really understands and dodging, Any interviewer worthy of the name? And is Labour going to make a comeback now that they've made a turn to the place they ought to have been in this election campaign and long before it? It's Rock and Roll Radio with pictures coming up.
0: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik.
1: This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet and Sputnik News Dot .com We're on FM in the Washington DC area 105.5 are the magic numbers there on AM radio across the United States from coast to coast but you can also watch this radio show which makes it pretty special you can watch it on my YouTube channel George Galloway Official on my Facebook George Galloway Official and on my Twitter feed, but you can also watch it on virtually every RT and Sputnik platform across the world. If you're watching on Facebook, make sure you ask and invite all of your friends to share, share, share as we drive upwards, ever upwards, towards that figure of one million viewers and listeners in whole or in part. Another bumper half million plus audience for last week's show, a 17% increase on the week before. Every week I say there's been an increase and that's because there has. So spread the word about this episode 24 of the mother of all talk shows. This show has, of course, been going since January of 2006 on successive platforms, But this is by far and away the biggest jet, and it's the one on which we intend and hope to stay. Now, it's general election time, so of course a terrorist murderer ran amok on London Bridge, just like in 2017. This time there was only one of them. Uh, But the method of operation, modus operandi, was strikingly similar. Even a white truck strewn, spread-eagled across London Bridge, though. That was only as it turned out because the driver had been told by the police to abandon it there and it handily blocked off one side of the bridge. Uh, But the madcap murderer had two large kitchen knives duct taped to both of his hands to make it more difficult for him to drop them or someone to take them. It's reported that he had a gun in his bag and strapped around his waist was what looked, uh, for all the world, like a suicide vest. Which makes all the more extraordinary the have a go heroes, five I think of whom, set about this man with a small two meter tusk of a whale that they had seized from the wall of the fishmonger's hall where this incident started with fire extinguishers and with their own bare hands. They grappled this murderer who'd already killed a young man and a young woman, fine young people from Cambridge University, dedicating their lives to the rehabilitation of offenders, making life better for people in prison. He'd already- them and was on his way to find anyone else that he could murder. But these heroes grappled him to the ground and one of them took the knives out of his hands, ripped off the tape and got the offensive weapons away, leaving, of course, the suicide belt. I think we should pay tribute to the Metropolitan Police Firearms Squad for the speed and skill with which they dispatched this terrorist murderer. The only good ISIS terrorist is a dead ISIS terrorist. I've been saying that for many years, including when the British government, successive British governments, were doing everything they could to help ISIS win their wars in places like Syria. So the police did a fine job. It's exactly what we expect from them. And for those who say, It was a summary execution or that the man's civil liberties to a trial were somehow denied by the police action. I say balderdash, worse than balderdash. The police were not to know that this suicide vest was a fake one. They therefore risked their lives entirely in approaching him closely enough to shoot him dead. And hallelujah, they did. And may he now burn for eternity in hell. But the big questions that remain unanswered are these. Why was Usman Khan the terrorist murderer, would-be mass murderer? Why was he released from prison? The original trial judge who tried him and the rest of his then Al-Qaeda cell, isis hadn't been born yet, though they have now claimed responsibility for the two murders and the other injuries that took place last Friday. The terrorist cell, then belonging to Al-Qaeda, were sentenced by the judge to an indeterminate sentence. That is to say that they must be kept in prison if necessary for the rest of their lives until and unless they could prove to the state that they were no longer a danger to the public. And that is where the story should have ended. And if it had, Usman Khan would have been long forgotten and rotting away in a prison cell, which is where he deserved to be. By the way, the Al-Qaeda cell in question planned to blow up the city of London. The Houses of Parliament and murder political leaders, including now Prime Minister, then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson. Why then, on appeal, was that sentence cut to 16 years? And an even bigger why was this man released not even halfway through that sentence? Early attention went to the parole board But the parole board were quick off the mark to say nothing at all to do with us. We have never considered this man's case. It turns out he was automatically released, not at halfway, but less than halfway, through a sentence that had originally been indeterminate. In other words, potentially a whole life sentence. Automatically, he was released. Well, they say he agreed to put on an electronic tag. But what is the point of an electronic tag if it isn't being monitored? And I presume it wasn't being monitored because he, presto, the man who planned to blow up the city of London got back in the city of London on the very bridge within a few hundred yards of the very buildings he had been planning to blow sky high, which got him the jail sentence of indeterminate in the very first place. So my question is, of course, on the proximate issues involved. Why? Why was he there? Why was he able to be there? Why was he released from prison and all of that? But you can't avoid the deeper question. If Osman Khan had strapped those knives to his wrists and packed his gun in his bag and headed instead for Syria, well, the British government, successive British governments, would probably have paid his fare. Because these last years, and not yet over, British and other Western governments have been facilitating precisely the kind of people with precisely the same ideology and precisely the same death cult modus operandi of cutting people's throats and cutting their hearts out, knifing them, crucifying them, beheading them. And we've been supporting them. So it's not very credible, you know, to oppose al-Qaeda and ISIS on London Bridge, but to support them in Aleppo and Damascus. And I'm coming out fighting on this point because at the time of the last election, I was less than a mile away from the mass murder of innocents in the Manchester arena, carried out by another ISIS al-Qaeda affiliate who was part of a community of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the clue was in the name, who were facilitated by the British government to go to Libya on the immoral principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. But your enemy's enemy is sometimes worse than your enemy, even uglier, even more repellent. Worse, when you've strengthened your enemy's enemy, once he's either won or been defeated against your original enemy, he's coming back home to you. Now, my last point on this subject is this. I make no generic criticism, of course, of the intelligence services. I'm sure that they have many fine people working very hard, foiling many such plots of Islamist terror in London and elsewhere in Britain. But I've got to tell you, a staggering number of these terrorist murderers have already been on TV. They've already appeared on reality programs, including this maniac, Usman Khan. I can watch the videos of the original London Bridge guys from 2017 and this one. They've given Umpteen interviews demonstrating beyond contradiction the kind of people that they are. So I've got to ask this question. If the security services are not following these people, who are they following? Because one after the other after the other of these Islamist TV reality show stars has ended up dead on the streets of London, having killed many other people before themselves succumbing. And what about this Anjum Chowdhury? He seems to me he's spider at the center of the web. All of these people are his acolytes. I hope we're keeping a close la- a- a- eye on him. And why not treat it as inherently more than suspicious If you are in the orbit of this mastermind, Anjum Chowdhury, I don't know quite why he also is at liberty, him also having had his sentence cut. We'll be taking calls on all of the London Bridge issues, of course, uh, throughout the show. Donald Trump arrives in, uh, I think, less than 48 hours, maybe just over 24 hours from now, the Trump will have landed. He's here for a NATO summit. If I was pushed to find a bigger waste of time and money, it would be, in the middle of a British general election, hosting a NATO summit, and especially one where the starring role is to be played by Donald J. Trump. What is NATO even for? You may well ask yourself, because NATO was set up to confront a geopolitical challenge, an existential challenge from the Soviet Union and at the end of the war in 1945, but communism has been 39 years dead. The Soviet Union no longer exists. All of its former satellite states are either in NATO or trying to get into NATO. What is the point of this NATO? And what role is Donald Trump going to play in the general election campaign? I'm willing to bet that Boris Trump, who has drawled his way, sometimes looking like he's brawled his way, through yet another week of Britain's general election, and he's bound to be extremely worried about what Donald Trump is going to say or do whilst in England that might affect adversely his chances of forming a majority government after December the 12th. Johnson is now speaking literally robot. It is impossible to discern human speak in what it is that he's saying on interview after interview. Talk about autopilot. Talk about merely uh, a speak-your-weight machine. And by the way, Boris, whatever happened to that diet that you were going on? Whatever happened to that? No more booze for the rest of the general election because you look to me like a man that slept in his car after a night on the tiles. And I don't understand a word that you are saying. And I'm amazed at how bad you are, Boris Johnson. I'm really amazed at it. Is that what you get for all the expensive education that you have had at Eton, at Oxford, in the Bullingdon Club? I'm surprised whatever charm you've got has taken you so far. Opinion polls, though, show him very clearly on track for a majority on December the 12th, and we need to talk about why that might be. We need to talk about why Labour, with its bumper giveaway manifesto, is not making any appreciable dent. There is one opinion poll that shows Labour closing the gap to six points. It's not exactly narrow, but six points. And there's only nine days to go, Uh, I think, ten days maybe uh, to go. Uh, But the average of the last six polls puts the Tories well over ten points, ahead in one case, twelve points. All of which add up to a Tory victory, and we need to know Why? I'll be talking to Professor Steve Hall in the course of the uh, show about my thesis, which is about the embourgeoisification of the so-called left and the proletarianization of the so-called right and what that means for the future. The German government, as I speak, is now hanging by threads because the German Social Democrats, the SPD, have elected Two people seems to be some kind of job share uh, as their new leaders and those new leaders want to break with Merkel's coalition. So it might be that Germany is in the throes of a general election pretty soon also. And lastly, of course, we simply cannot get away from the Jeffrey Epstein affair. The young lady that alleges that Prince Andrew thrice had sex with her when she was a trafficked minor in the United States and when she was a mere 17-year-old girl here in London, which would not have been illegal, but would be a pretty ropey thing to do, especially as that girl had been procured for you, not because she loved you, not because she thought you were uh, fine and dandy, but because Ghislaine Maxwell procured her for you. She's giving an interview on Britain's television tomorrow evening, and that story is like to take another sinister turn. At this rate, Andrew will be working in that famous Pizza Express down in Woking before very much longer. We've got a poll. Poll number one. What's the best counter-terrorism measure? A, build a wall. B, launch a war. C, stop arming terrorists. You can now vote on my Twitter feed at george galloway this
0: is the mother of all talk shows you're listening to radio sputnik
2: by any means necessary is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration
3: no longer am i interested in or concerned with prison reform i am interested only in the eradication of prisons.
2: To the battle between police and water protectors.
4: It was a pretty punishing disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons
5: on peaceful, prayerful uh, water protectors.
2: From efforts to protect the environment.
5: The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with, you know, the right of both science and morality to fight them
6: on this.
2: To the movement for black lives.
6: When I first saw the Michael Brown video, when I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me shocked.
2: Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com.
0: George Galloway, and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees.
2: We are talking
0: 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space.
2: Radio Sputnik, telling
0: the untold mother of all talk shows, the only education you can get for free, only on Sputnik Radio.
1: Now, just so you know, for the second week in succession, this show is the subject of a massive cyber attack, multiple uh, attacks, denial of service attacks. Last week, it was precisely at 7 p.m. Uh, this week, they got their retaliation in early and were attacking us from 10 minutes to seven. And apparently RT News last Monday was also affected by a cyber attack. So I appeal to my friends in the Kremlin to treat this as a matter of national honour and put the best brains immediately into unearthing the source of these now weekly cyber attacks. Is it a state actor? Is it the Full of Integrity initiative? Who might it be? Perhaps it's NATO. And on which subject? We have the man. Now, on the line from the United States. He's got a new book out. And we're looking for orders for pre-sales. It's called Bullet Points and Punchlines. And it has a foreword by the legendary Chris Hedges. He is, of course, Lee Camp a comedian, a presenter, a writer, an activist, and one of the very best men in the United States of America. I missed your stand-up show because I was on the air last time. Don't make it a Sunday night. Next time, Lee, welcome to the show. Lee, are you there? Thank you for
7: having me, and congrats. That's on your cyber attack. That
1: yeah, I mean, it's a badge of honor, Lee. If you've not been cyber-attacked, you're not doing any useful work. Unfortunately. (laughs)
7: Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, the reality is Donald Trump's arriving here on Tuesday for a NATO summit. About what exactly? What is NATO for? What's Donald Trump for? I think we'll need to hang up and dial Lee back again uh, because we need to hear his words of wisdom in perfect clarity. Let me uh, go on to on this day, December 1. On this day in 1955, one of the most famous, perhaps the most famous icons of the U.S. civil rights movement was in Montgomery, Alabama for refusing to give up her seat on a bus to a white person. Let me run that past you again. In my lifetime, don't tell the wife she thinks I'm 45. In my lifetime, a woman got arrested in Alabama because she was black and refused to give up her seat to a white person and these people go around the world lecturing the rest of us on democracy and Liberty. She was, of course, Rosa Parks. And five days later, she appeared in court and was fined $10 plus $4 cost for refusing to give up her seat to a white person. That arrest and that court appearance sparked a boycott of Alabama's buses by black people. Nearly all of Montgomery's, 40,000 black people, took part in the protest, which lasted 381 days. On the evening of the trial, a young preacher called Dr. Martin Luther King addressed a crowd of several thousand at Holt Street Baptist Church and called for the boycott to continue. On December 20th, the Supreme Court upheld the decision of a lower court to end segregation on Alabama's buses. Parks, however, was sacked from her job. And in 1957, left Montgomery for Detroit. To, uh, after terrific harassment, as you can imagine, she became special assistant to a Democratic congressman until her retirement in 1988. We'll come back to more on this days because the cyber attack has scuppered the Skype conversation with Lee uh, Lee Camp. So we're going to have to talk to him. Uh, on the telephone is he available already Chris you're let's take a call then from Pennsylvania Jared welcome to the show
5: Uh, hello again George nice to talk to you and you oh it's pretty good Uh, raining pretty hard here Uh, it's it's so dreary and everything else
1: well let's try and brighten everything up Uh, Donald Trump's come here to bring some sunshine into our lives (laughs)
5: <laughs> oh great the clown is uh, coming with the uh, clown show. Yeah, the circus uh, this, the
1: circus is in town. Uh
5: this this whole NATO thing um wh- why uh, NATO exists apparently just to enrich the military uh contractors at this point there is no logistical reason it should exist. It it has not had a reason to exist since 1990 basically. And um, what I really wanted to talk about was this whole British um, terrorist attack. And it's, it's interesting that this happened just before a general election, that a terrorist just mysteriously popped up again and just started killing uh, people um, in London.
1: I don't think about it. It was released uh, last December, so a year ago. Uh, And, of course, uh, attacking during a general election on precisely the same bridge is exactly the kind of thing a terrorist would do.
5: Hmm. And and why is it that British um, intelligence isn't going after these kind of people? it really makes you wonder like what exactly is going on it's almost like they want these attacks to happen
1: well i'm, I'm not sure they... That they're I, I, i'm sure i'm not a conspiracy theorist and i'm sh- yeah. i'm sure i'm certain that they don't want them to happen uh, because well the contrary belief would be uh, enough to make you go into a darkened room with a pearl-handed revolver and dispatch yourself but uh the question you raise is an important one because this man was convicted for an advanced conspiracy to commit murder and mayhem on a a, a huge scale. Holy war they wanted to wage in the centre of London. So there's a series of questions that I asked at the beginning of the show, namely how he ended up there. Uh, Electronic tag not even being worth the uh, name really because it might be electronic but nobody appears to be tagging you
5: <laughs> yeah they're, they're tagging you just as good as uh jeffrey epstein uh, was being watched yeah. uh, by the cameras right yeah yeah good and, idea uh, good point yeah but, but another another thing the british um they they have julian assange locked away locked away uh a key thrown away and all And uh, yet they let these um, uh, jihadi terrorists go through, and it's like Assange poses no threat to a butterfly, basically. But you're letting these kind of people roam around the streets, killing, murdering people. And uh, I, I have to point back that this is British and American foreign policy coming back to bite people. because. They they destabilized uh, Syria. They destabilized Libya. They destabilized Iraq. And these were secular Arab nationalist governments that did, um, for the most part, have a safety net and took care of their
1: people. Well, look, uh, it's a bad line. uh, It's a bad line, uh, Jared. And it's absolutely true uh, that uh, when we opened the gates of hell in Iraq in 2003, That hell is still burning, and not just in Iraq, though Iraq is burning brightly this evening uh, from uh, all corners of that benighted land. Lee Camp is on the line, this time by telephone. Lee, I'm so sorry we were rudely interrupted by a dastardly cyber attack, but they can't interrupt our telephone conversation.
7: (laughs) Yeah, it's good to hear
4: you, George.
1: Now, uh, Donald Trump's arriving... Uh, on Tuesday for NATO so my first question is what is this NATO summit for what is NATO for President Macron has just described NATO as brain dead and it surely is it's surely now on the life support machine and I'm not sure Donald Trump's going to give it much of an oomph what do you say
7: well, yeah, I, uh, clearly they're having issues, and I think that the, the problem is that the U- U.S. hegemonic adventurism has even gone too far for NATO, even though NATO has been involved in many of our uh, invasions and attacks in the past. I mean, I, I think a lot of, you know, especially Americans, look at NATO as this war-legitimizing body, that if it's a good war, then But in, in my view, that's just the Christmas wreath on the front of the pedophile's home, you know, it. It, it sits there and everyone goes, oh, well, that must mean it's a good thing. But it, 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 you look in the basement and these, you know, what, what was done to Libya being led by France and the U.S. with NATO's backing was just taking one of the most developed countries in Africa and turning it into a smoldering pile of warring factions. So to act like these are somehow good wars is is just repulsive and, and wrong.
1: There's uh, There is a division opening up. Uh, between some of the NATO powers and the United States. Of that, there's no doubt. I mentioned Macron uh, again. Uh, He declared yesterday, I think, the day before maybe, that Russia is no longer our enemy. Uh, Now, that's quite a striking statement to make on the eve of a NATO summit. Are people in the United States aware uh, that the long alliance with many uh, of uh, America's ancient partners. I mean, the Statue of Liberty uh, came from the French to you. Uh, Are people in America aware of this breach which is opening up?
7: No, I mean, I I haven't seen it. Maybe some are, but, uh, you know, our mainstream media is so caught up with nothing but uh, impeachment hearings twenty four seven or you know still the McCarthyism that that was with the the russia gate uh, hilarious uh, you know sketch comedy they did uh, i i don 't think they 've gotten the word that that macron said russia's not the enemy because if you look at what our you know Democrats in this country and our mainstream media is pushing russia is very much the enemy, and uh, you know we have to use NATO to continue to combat russia. Um, so I, I, don't know, I don't know that Americans really uh, see that this rift is coming. But considering how much war America wants to continue to have around the world, it, it makes sense that the other NATO countries might lose their appetite for that.
1: Now, how virulent still is this Russiagate uh, hoax in the United States? One thought that it was going to run out of steam uh, with the the damp squib of the Mueller report, but it appears to have got a new lease of life with, just rebadged, it's no longer Russia gate, but the Ukraine gate.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I, I think they're, they're, our mainstream media is, uh, is using the fact that most Americans don't know the difference between Russia and Ukraine <laughs> to their benefit, so, uh, so they, they use that to continue the, the neo-McCarthyism. And, you know, the scientific studies have shown that people over a given enough time and, and enough repetition confuse familiarity with truth. So if you just hear Russiagate over and over and over again, you assume that something was found monstrous in those pages of the, when they failed to find collusion. And when uh, Mueller went in front of Congress and failed to present any case whatsoever, uh, people confuse familiarity with truth. So the mainstream media is continuing to repeat it. Uh, in the midst of the impeachment hearings, as if that that you know uh, the the Mueller report proved something dastardly about uh, Trump and Russia.
1: No, uh, of course, uh, 60% of Americans believed that Saddam Hussein had played a part in bringing down the Twin Towers on 9/11. Uh, so <laughs> that's true. Uh, if you're going to tell a lie, make it a very big one and uh, endlessly repeat it, and perhaps sufficient numbers of people will uh, believe it. But Trump doesn't look all that troubled to me. Is there not an argument uh, for saying that most Americans are not focused when it comes to voting for the next president uh, on the obscurities of Joe Biden's obscure coke-sniffing son and more on their uh, their own pensions, their own wages, the strength of the U.S. economy, and so on.
7: Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate Trump, Trump does know how to talk to what many Americans uh, continue to be concerned about. He, he, he convinces them their problems are immigrants, and he talks to that. He speaks to their jobs. He speaks to the economy. Um, whereas the Democrats, it, it's and, and much of our mainstream media, have just set themselves up perfectly to lose this next election again to Donald Trump. I mean, they've created a hearing that will indict uh, Joe Biden as much as, as it could possibly indict Donald Trump for being corrupt. So, you know, their, their so-called front runner is collapsing more every day. They have they they have undermined the true left in the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders. They either don't speak about him, or when they do, they try to uh, act like he's some sort of maniac, you know who wants to steal your 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 money from everybody in America. And uh, they have put forward these pathetic, uh, limp uh, candidates, the mainstream candidates like Buttigieg and and Amy Klobuchar and stuff, who who seem to have no hope against a a Donald Trump, who may be lying to the American people, but at least he's speaking to what they actually
5: care about.
1: Now, uh, I, I, I'm very clear, if, uh, if Bernie Sanders is not his opponent, uh, then Trump will beat like a drum any of these other Democrats that uh, are put in front of him. But it, it continues to astonish me that Biden can be the, still the front runner. Uh, I saw him on television today, despite all the creepy Joe uh, suspicions about him, saying how much he loved it when children on the campaign trail uh, bounced over and, uh, and bounced into his lap. You, I mean, you can't watch Joe Biden for more
7: than 30 seconds without being amazed that our, our, it's really our ruling elite, the media, the Democrats try are continuing to try and push him forward i mean it's true weekend at bernie stuff this guy is a, a dead man walking his his teeth are falling out on stage literally his one of his eyes exploded in one of the debates um and they and he he must be on some sort of prescription meds that make him clearly loopy and yet uh, they keep trying to push this forward because they have nothing else they don't the democrat the democratic elites don't speak to the working people. They don't care. They don't know the average American. And so they're just putting pushing forward what they view as a
8: continuance
7: of the Obama administration. But, you know, Biden has a, a list. Uh, I mean, from his racism to his touching women problems to his uh, corruption in Ukraine, it, he, the list of, of problems with Biden is, is just incredible.
1: Yeah, uh, and his false teeth shooting out across the studio floor is just the uh least of them now your uh, your book it's it's simply uh irresistible bullet points and punchlines and chris hedges you've got lee camp and chris hedges and bullet points and punchlines tell us something about it will you
7: oh thank you yeah and the intro by jimmy Dore too i tried to put together a power team there uh, it, it is now. That uh, is a
1: triptych. Tri- that is a triptych. Jimmy Dore, Chris Hedges, and Lee Camp in the same book.
7: <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, Not it, since it peace, is-
1: land, and bread has there been a triptych <laughs> like it.
7: <laughs> Man, I, I should add you wrote the intro. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, it, it, it is. Uh, many of my Truthdig columns are written for Truthdig. Uh, it addresses everything from uh, the, the $21 trillion that's gone unaccounted for at the Pentagon over the past 20 years to uh, the endless coups that the U.S. promotes around the world. Um, I really tried to hit a little bit of everything, and so it's, it's you know, as is my, my brand. It's a little bit of comedy so that you can laugh instead of cry, uh, but plenty of truth in there as well.
1: I definitely will be amongst the first buyers this side of the pond. How do people order it?
7: Uh, It's LeeCampBook.com, and the, uh, the title is Bullet Points and Punchlines, and it's by PM Press.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Lee. Sorry about the Skype. I always like to gaze upon you when I'm hearing your words of wisdom and indeed hilarity. Thank you very much for joining us on the phone. Just a reminder... That we are for the second week running under massive cyber attack, but hey, our audience went up by 17% last week. So whoever you are, it ain't working. Now uh, here's an email from Stefan George. The German Social Democratic Party (SPD) did make the neo- did make the neoliberal chalice pass by. Surprisingly, they chose the progressive leaders Borjan's hyphen. Esken by 53% to 45%. That might mean the big coalition with the CDU, Merkel, in government will eventually split up. Thank you for that, Stefan. Uh, and on the poll, we've got Sarah Eaglesfield. I'd like to add guns for everyone into the mix. Also, you were in my dream this afternoon, which may have disturbed me a bit. Oh, dear, Sarah, I don't think I should press on air for further and better particulars. On that, a scrum master, hashtag Vote Labour. Also stop providing the circumstances whereby terrorism and radicalisation are allowed to thrive. Well, we have a poll. What's the best counter-terrorism measure? A surprisingly large 12% of you think we should build a wall. Well, Britain has, I think, from memory, or is this just Scotland? Scotland has 4,300 uh, miles of coastline uh, around which you'd have to build a wall. And Scotland is half the size of Britain. So that would be a roughly a 10,000 mile uh, wall, if I've got that right, around the whole country. It doesn't really work for us. might work for some of you in the United States. B, launch a war. 4% of you want to launch a war. Who are you people? And 84% of you have given the eminently sensible answer that we should stop arming terrorists. Now, as is my wont, I do a weekly short, I call them, short video for RT. This is The Current Weeks. Take a look. Not so much a car crash interview, more a full on helicopter crash, which has surely burned the royal career of the Queen's favorite son, Prince Andrew, Duke of York. For now, who knows how far the defenestration of Prince Andrew will go. He may be plain Andrew Windsor, working in the Pizza Express in Woking by the end of the week. The Queen has canceled his birthday party. Seems a bit harsh. It's a 60th birthday after all but she cannot be seen to be splashing the cash on a man now so utterly discredited. Prince Charles, the heir to the throne, has banished Prince Andrew from royal life. Andrew, it said, plans on making one day a comeback when he's cleared his name, but nobody involved with Jeffrey Epstein is going to clear their name anytime soon. In fact, their names are becoming ever more sullied. All their denials are beginning to turn ash in their mouths. Take Prince Andrew for example. He claimed that he wasn't staying in Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan on a material date when a young girl trafficked for the purposes of illicit sexual activity, said that he slept with her. He said he was staying with the British consulate, except they, having checked their diary, have now denied it. And be sure the British civil servant doesn't get that kind of thing mixed up. He let it be known that that might not have been his arm around the naked waist of a young 17 year old girl in the London apartment of Robert Maxwell's daughter, Lady Ghislaine. Except now that we've seen the whole picture, it very much is his hand around her waist. He says he doesn't recall ever meeting her. She says he had sex with her three times and that he was sweating profusely, he claimed that he didn't sweat at that time as a result of a helicopter incident in the Falklands War, up popped a specialist to say, adrenaline doesn't stop you from sweating. It's all very sordid, all very bizarre. And if he wasn't a member of the British Royal Family, it probably would just be the stuff of tabloids. But because he is in the British Royal Family and because he is a part of a circle of former presidents of the United States of America, Bill Clinton would be presidents of the United States of America, Hillary Clinton, former prime ministers of Israel, Ehud Barak, and even British political grandees like Lord Peter Mandelson, and we have now belatedly learned the master of spin, Alastair Campbell, spin doctor to Tony Blair, no less. They were all habitués of the house that Jeffrey Epstein built. And what a house it's turned out to be. The only question for Her Majesty is, how can she somehow sever her favorite son in order to save? The rest of the family, how can she cauterize the wound that Prince Andrew has now inflicted upon Britain's royal family and its whole system of constitutional monarchy? It's said that the Queen was determined to act after Prince Andrew's dirty antics began to be an issue in the British general election campaign. Well, the general election campaign will be over Pretty soon, the trials of all those connected to Jeffrey Epstein will not be over for many a year. I'm absolutely sure about that.
0: Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view.
1: I'm getting some stick from some of the metropolitan elite in, uh, through the glass here about my pronunciation of the French word H-A-B-I-T-U-E-S, Habitways or Habitues as we'd call them in Dundee. Tell me what you think the proper pronunciation of that word is. Here's the phone number, 02077-982-255. That's 2077 982 Or if you're in the U.S., it's one 757 4480 You can also Tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News and you'll get through. We've also got an on air email address for those who prefer the longer form, and that is on air at ggmotes.com. On air at ggmotes.com. The poll is currently affected by cyber attack. Uh, 800 people have voted. I'll bring you the changes uh, to the batting order cyber-attacking permitting. Uh, Let's take some calls. They can't interrupt us there, can they? It's Simon in London. Go ahead, Simon.
9: Hi, George. You OK?
1: Yeah, good. Nice to hear from you. Go ahead.
9: That's good. Well... I I came on your show a couple of weeks ago to discuss this when you were discussing the ISIS situation. I've said time and time again, Saudi Arabia has been responsible for radicalizing, disenchanted Muslim youth in the UK for years. Yeah, decades, decades. Decades, yes, decades. Thanks for the correction. Something that the government in the UK have stayed quietly, uh, very quiet on, particularly when it's favored regime change in countries like Libya and Syria. Unfortunately, you probably know better than I do. We've seen members of terrorist sleeper cells going rogue when one of the so-called of Libyan boys, as very well documented in John Pilcher's article, who was originally being used to overthrow the Gaddafi government by the British government under uh, our most useless Prime Minister of all time, Theresa May's watch, uh, uh, went rogue, resulting in the deaths of hundreds in in Manchester. Um, I also find it very suspicious as to why little to nothing about this guy has been revealed all we know is that he, he was involved in a terrorist cell in 2010-ish. So we don't know why he was, why he, why he, did this, why he went crazy, uh, uh, and why he suddenly went ballistic. From the videos that I've seen, by the way, he seems to have been restrained on the ground. So why have they decided to kill him on the spot? Because he had her? a
1: suicide vest on.
9: Yes, okay, well, that's a, that's a fair point. But there's another... Well, it's another more than a fair point.
1: point. Like, I, no, Simon, it's more than a fair point. It's a completely unanswerable one, rendering your your question okay, well, absolutely sh- silly.
9: Okay, hold on a second. Let me, let me make another point. Why is nobody questioning the modus operandi of these, of these attacks? Firstly, it's either uh, a terrorist taking control of a car or truck and driving them into crowds of people, or a knife attack being carried out. This didn't just happen in the UK. This also happened in The Hague a couple of days ago. Well, it happened believe-
1: on the same day in The Hague. And uh, let me answer your first of your questions, and then I'll let you back in. Uh, After the killing of al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, a call went out to all their cells and supporters around the world to attack civilians in what they call the Crusader countries, in the so-called coalition countries that are fighting them. And this individual was carrying out that order, presumably... The uh, attacker in The Hague, who's not yet been apprehended, I think, uh, was doing the same thing. They do it on a Friday, uh, the Muslim holiday, and they did it on a bridge and on, in the middle of a general election for obvious reasons of uh, political theatre. That's what these acts of terrorism are, blood-soaked, death-cult theatre,
9: Yes, I agree, but I do think there's more to it than meets the eye, as I said.
1: Well, you're going to need to tell us, because otherwise you just sound like a crazed conspiracy theorist. I ain't a conspiracy theorist. I find that
9: very offensive, George, as I said.
1: Well, you'll need to put a better point then. Don't just say there's more to it than meets the eye. Tell us what it is that might not be meeting the eye. Have you left? I mean... It's deeply offensive to the dead people, the wounded people, the brave people who disarmed this individual, the people who were cut and slashed, but not killed, but are still in hospital. It's deeply offensive to come on the radio with a crazed and even worse implied rather than directly stated theory that actually this never really happened, that it's a false flag or uh, that it's uh, there's much more to it than meets the eye. Tell me what it is that doesn't meet the eye or don't bother. Sean in Leeds. Go ahead, Sean.
10: Hi, George. It's Hi. great to speak to you. And um, you. I used to speak to you when you were on your old show on, on TalkSport. Uh, that was, a, that was local Darkly. radio.
1: That was local radio, Sean.
10: <laughs> yeah, I'm aware of that. I oh, was Sean of East Arsley, I don't think you'll remember me, but... Uh, oh, I yes, I fantastic. do, I do. Oh, Welcome fantastic. back. Welcome oh, back, Sean. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, George, it concerns um, the group of Al-Qaeda's uh, ambulance service known as the White Helmets. Yeah, we're still have been supporting bro- them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have been Hollywood, Hollywood ordered, gave them been- an Oscar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, the British government actually rescued them from the Golden Heights and over 100 of these people are now in the United Kingdom and being resettled and being given new identities.
1: What could possibly go wrong?
10: (laughs) Exactly. I contacted my local MP in Morley and Outwood, who is Andrea Jenkins, the Conservative MP, and asked if any of these throat-cutting, head-chopping, heart-eating maniacs were moving into this area. I was told that I couldn't be given that information due to the Data Protection Act. <laughs> yeah.
1: You see, this, this, uh, this is the liberal nonsense that has put us uh, where we are. So we might be living next door to Al-Qaeda's ambulance service. The people, yeah, exactly. the people who, who picked up the heads after they were parted from the shoulder of their owners, and now they're yeah. living in England, but you're not allowed to know if they're near you because of the Data Protection Act.
10: Correct, it's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, the, uh, she wrote two letters back to me when I've kept those letters, they were from October and September of last year. So if any of these maniacs do, cause any harm in this country, I will forward these letters to you immediately,
1: George. Yeah, please, because uh, it's not just them. Of course, that's alarming enough. Uh, But there were thousands of, uh, I mean, tens, scores of thousands of European uh, uh, citizens and subjects who went to fight for ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria and in Iraq. Now, some of them, thank God, have been killed. Others of them are behind bars, though the bars are not particularly stringent or necessarily long-lasting. We don't know what will become of those. But a very large proportion of those who left Europe to fight for ISIS are either on their way back to Europe or are already here. And until we get out of the European Union... If they've come back to Europe, they can walk in here as uh, free as you like. They can even set up home here. They can bring all their friends here under the free movement rules uh, in the European Union. So if that's not a cause for concern, I have no idea what would be.
10: Well, exactly. Um, And by the way, the uh, terrorist, the monster from the Libyan Islamic fighting uh, group, uh, that terrorist who blew our children up at Manchester were actually rescued off the coast of Libya by the Royal Navy.
1: Yeah, I, I, did, read that. I did read that. It's absolutely unbelievable. You see, I knew this uh, group of people when they were sent there. The Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the clue, as I say, being in the name, were deliberately concentrated in Manchester by the British authorities. Uh, their control orders were lifted, I think by Gordon Brown, and their passports were returned to them, definitely by Theresa May. And their facilitation uh, to the battlefield in Libya was done by the British Security Services, MI6. And they were able to go fight for ISIS and Al-Qaeda on the battlefield in Libya and have free passage back to Manchester. As I say, what could possibly go wrong? Well, we know what went wrong, Sean. And a very significant number of our children were blown apart by a person, our navy, rescued off the coast of Libya. Ridiculous, absolutely. And
10: I remember watching Sky TV uh, and I believe that the fighters over there were from Manchester that were fighting against the Gaddafi regime, yeah. and the Sky reporters were on the back of the trucks with them laughing and joking with these oh, people. Oh, yeah, I remember it vividly. It's absolutely the roaring, incredible.
1: The, what was the name of that woman correspondent that pops up in all the wars? Roaring down the road in a pickup... Uh, what's her name, Chris? No, it wasn't her. She's the BBC. It was the Sky woman, uh, the new Kate AD. Anyway, racing... Racing down the highway, pickup truck, laughing and joking with these ISIS and Al Qaeda types uh, on their way to uh, eventual victory in Libya. What, what? Alex Crawford. That's it. Thank you very much. Must have been one of the old timers through there that remembered Kate Adie. Uh She that was, that was uh, under the old king. Uh, now, thanks, Sean, uh, for that. I need to throw to the news with the lovely Emily. Horn.
0: Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway.
6: This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Files TV
9: News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, progressive Democrats of America, CD,
11: America.org. Hey, everybody. My name is Tim Black of the Tim Black Show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold, Coats & Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson.
12: Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That.
9: This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive
5: Fox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C.
13: This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan.
9: When I'm waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for today. day. I tune to fault line with Nixon and Stranahan.
5: The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy.
13: They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media.
7: Fault Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due
8: respect, and it's a wonderful conversation.
5: The best morning news show in America, Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio Spot Next.
2: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com.
7: Radio Sputnik News.
3: The second victim of Friday's terrorist attack on London Bridge has been named as 23-year-old Saskia Jones. She is a former Cambridge University student. The first victim to be named was 25-year-old Jack Merritt. Following the attack, the two main political parties in Britain's general election are blaming each other for the early release from prison of the terrorist, Usman Khan. Khan, who had served half of his sentence, went on a murderous rampage which was brought to an end after members of the public overpowered him. He was then shot dead by armed police after he revealed what turned out to be a fake suicide vest. The UK Ministry of Justice has also launched an urgent review. 74 other people jailed for terror offences and released early are to have their license conditions reviewed. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson claims that scrapping early release would have stopped Khan. Labour is blaming budget cuts for what it called missed chances to intervene. 28-year-old Khan had been previously jailed over a plot to bomb the London Stock Exchange in 2009. He was initially sentenced to indeterminate detention which would have allowed him to be kept in prison beyond the minimum term. But in 2013 the Court of Appeal quashed the sentence replacing it with a 16-year fixed term of which Khan should serve half in prison. He was released on license in December 2018 subject to what authorities described as an extensive list of license conditions. An Irish citizen who became an Islamic State bride has been arrested after arriving back in Dublin. While Lisa Smith and her daughter traveled from Turkey after being deported arriving in Ireland today. She was arrested on landing and it is expected she will now be interviewed by police about suspected terrorist offenses. Plans have also been made for the care of her two-year-old daughter who was born in Syria but is an Irish citizen. Police in New Orleans say there have been 11 victims of a shooting incident in the city's French Quarter tourist hub. U.S. media quoted one officer as saying two people were in critical condition. No fatalities have been reported. The incident took place on Canal Street between Bourbon and Chartres streets at about 3.20 local time today. Police said on their Twitter feed that one suspect had been apprehended near the scene, while they later said the person's possible involvement was still under investigation and that no arrests had been made. Video footage from the scene showed numerous police vehicles cordoning off an area as forensic teams made checks while the French Quarter has been hosting makers marking the weekend after Thanksgiving. On this weekend in 2016, a man was killed and nine other people wounded in a shooting on Bourbon Street. In June 2014, another shooting incident on the same street left one person dead and nine injured. People in China are now required to have their faces scanned when registering new mobile phone services, as the authorities seek to verify the identities of the country's hundreds of millions of Internet users. The regulation announced in September came into effect today. The government says it wants to protect the legitimate rights and interests of citizens in cyberspace. China already uses facial recognition technology to survey its population. And finally, U.S. composer Irving Burgie, who helped to popularize Caribbean music with hit songs like Deo, has died aged 95. His death was confirmed by Barbados Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley, who called for a movement of silence for the man who wrote its national anthem. He was best known for helping singer Harry Belafonte bring calypso music to the mainstream. The 1950s song Deo went on to not only be used in films, adverts, and even as a wake-up call for astronauts in space. The calypso hit featured in the popular film Beetlejuice and had been sampled by rapper Lil Wayne and singer Jason Derulo. His website says his songs have sold more than 100 million records worldwide. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn.
0: You're listening to Radio Sputnik Sputnik. Telling the Untold Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves With George Galloway Only on Sputnik Radio
1: well, the uh, poll is running. What's the best counter terrorism measure? A, build a wall, 12%. That's down one. Uh, B, launch a war, still standing at 4%. And C, stop arming terrorists, 84%. Of course, there are many other options. And uh, so my answer would probably be well, none of those will in itself solve the problem of terrorism. Take the issue of building a wall. Uh, Clearly, that's more for our American cousins uh, because you couldn't literally build a wall around Britain. Uh, Even uh, if you broke the bank of Monte Carlo, you couldn't afford to build a 10,000-mile wall around our country, and then we wouldn't be able to see out. Uh, But in the sense that building a wall means maintaining uh, a properly policed border uh, that we control ourselves, I'm actually strongly in favor of that. But that wouldn't have solved Friday's problem because I'm not sure that the murderer on Friday had ever actually been outside of Britain. He was British, born and bred here. I know that because he appeared on a reality television show to tell us all about it. So the fact that there exists in our midst a terrorist menace of sufficient number, at least, that the security services say they cannot keep tabs on them all, which does beg the question, if not all, then what is it that informs your prioritization of those that you're keeping uh, tabs on? Maybe stop keeping tabs on me and that'll free up somebody to keep tabs on uh, one of these mass murderers, just saying. Uh, Anyway, the email address is onair at ggmotes.com. More than a thousand people have voted so far. Lots of emails coming in. Uh, George, do you think the intelligence services have a history of letting a few attacks take place to suit the bigger goal, not least of which is the millions pumped into it? I can think of the dirty war in the north of Ireland, for example. Should we not seek answers and have real insight? into what they do. Absolutely, we uh, should seek answers and have proper democratic accountability of our security uh, forces, something we, quite frankly, do not have at this minute. And without a doubt, it is demonstrated, again beyond all contradiction, that there was British state collusion uh, with murders in the north of Ireland for decades uh, during the long war in the, from the late 1960s onwards. And this has been exposed now by film after film. Uh, none better than the one made by my good friend, Sean Murray, which just won the Northern Ireland Royal Television Society Award uh, on the, his film, uh, Unquiet Dead, on the Glen and gang. So that was from Frank in Bristol. Uh, George, I heard the UK government is negotiating a post-Brexit trade deal with the Orange Freak in the White House. One of the issues is the expiration of drug patents, and the negotiations have gotten to the point where they're talking about the UK adopting an American-style healthcare system. Is this really true? Do the citizens of the UK have any idea the hell most people go through to get decent, affordable healthcare in the United States? Do the people know... That healthcare is still the number one cause of bankruptcy in the US. What does Labour say about this? That's from Jim L. in Fort Collins, CO. Is that Colorado? CO. Uh, very good points, uh, Jim. We uh, dealt with this at some length in last week's show in the segment on the great NHS heist. Alan Marshall says on Twitter the best anti terrorism idea would be to make people's lives much better in those countries. Don't do coups, don't use intelligences, don't bomb them, don't invade them. Well, as I said, Alan, this uh, killer uh, was British, uh, born here and raised here, and as far as I know, never actually left the country. Now, let me carry on because there's lots more. Uh, You know it makes sense, Jimmy. If you want to stop terrorism, stop illegal wars. If you bomb some country, don't be surprised if someone comes over to give some payback. And if it looks like all the West wants to do is bomb Islamic countries, don't be surprised how easy it is for some to be radicalized. Well, again, up to a point, Lord Copper, uh, as the old saying goes, it turns out that this man was radicalized by the group formerly known as Al-Mahajarun, And, of course, Anjum Chowdhury is uh, one of the linchpins of that. But there was another one, a big fella called Brooks, I can't remember his first name, but I remember his face and his hot breath very well, Uh, because this group actually took me hostage, me and my daughter and her then very young baby in her arms, in an old people's meeting uh, in the basement of uh, a tower block in the East End of London. They came in en masse and they locked the door behind them. And they talked about hanging me uh, from a noose. Uh, later that night, terrible vengeance was visited upon them by my supporters and casualties from al Mahajarun were being taken to East End hospitals uh, all over the shop and for many hours. But for the time that they had me hostage, I was not able to call out and seek help. There was no way of informing the police what was happening. It was a truly terrifying experience, and my daughter, God bless her, marched to the front of the room with her baby in her arms and stood right in front of me, thinking naively that these people were sincere Muslims who would not put their hand on a woman. But of course, there's nothing Islamic about these people. This is a death cult. and. We have to face the fact that we have people like that in our midst and it's our duty leaving aside all questions of foreign wars and invasions and so on, and I'm not in second place to anybody in this country in opposition to those things, but the first priority of any government, any state, any mayor, any minister, any prime minister, any police officer, the first priority is to defend our people here right now up to the maximum point that we can do so. And that is not being done well enough. That's just the point I am making. Orwell's Math Class says none of your poll options. Build a wall, we need a border, or there is no idea of a nation. If there are people that hate us, they should not be here. Uh, I think I just dealt with that point, but thanks. Orwell, Paul Anthony Taylor says, there is no single best measure. The answer is a combination of education, dialogue, punishment and persistence. And Ian Tinsley says, to stop terrorism we should cut the hate preachers at source. And William Cravey says, every one of these options is a mere band-aid. If you want to end global terrorism, you need to end the global elite cabal i.e. the 1% that manufactures and perpetuates the terrorist boogeyman threat and the terror events that keep us divided and living in fear. Can't go all the way with you on that, I'm afraid, my friend. Now, I coined a phrase early in this general election campaign. It was when I talked about the embourgeoisification of the left and the proletarianization of the right, only to discover that my next guest has been preaching and teaching and writing about this precise phenomenon for some considerable uh, time. He is the Emeritus Professor of Criminology, Steve Hall, and he's written a wonderful article called Back to the Future on the British liberal left's return to its origins. Professor Hall is on the line now. Professor, welcome. Hi, George. Nice to we, uh, nice to talk to you again.
14: Yes, yes, it's a while since I've seen you. <clears throat> I now, hope you're okay.
1: Yeah, by the grace of God, I'm good, and I'm uh, daily experiencing uh, the precise thing that you and I are both uh, talking about. But you go first. Summarise your article for us, will you? Well,
14: I could have called it. We was robbed, you know, because the, the, since the, 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 the inception of the left various groups coming together in the 19th century in a Social Democratic Federation etc. Um, the working class voice the voice of its experience, its everyday experience, um, and the voice of, of, of its structural location, where it was located in in, in a society in a, you know in the, the, the uh, heyday of industrial capitalist society, was virtually absent from the discourses and narratives that were so, that were emerging amongst these various leftist groups. Um, some groups, um, indeed, social democratic federation, officially excluded working class. People from um, their um, hierarchy.
1: How did they so, do Just as a matter of interest, how did they do that?
14: Well, they, well, they simply didn't. Um, and, and they didn't invite them to meetings, and they took no notice of, of what they said.
1: This is the and, ultimate Fabianism, isn't it? That socialism is something that um, upper and middle class people will dole out like medicine uh, in, uh, in white coats in a lab. Yes, you can
14: use that analogy. I think it's quite a good one, possibly a better one. Is, is that they simply use the, the working class to populate their their vision? They have a vision of society, they have a vision of a better future and better, brave new world, as Huxley said. And the working class there are, are, are just there populated. And if you don't agree with them, if you don't say, well, you know, we want a different world. We want the world to be better for us. We want the world to be better in a different way. Then, of course, you're systematically excluded. I had this experience in academia, 30 years in academia. Um, I'm the son of a a working class um, industrial plumber from a pit village in the county Durham. And no matter how good you were, no matter how many books you wrote, no matter how many Contributions you made to the discipline, you were sort of politely tolerated. Okay, Steve, that's very interesting. Thank you. But you weren't, you get nowhere near the cannon. Your ideas aren't reproduced, they're not celebrated. And in some cases, they're, they're met with hostility. So I was speaking from personal experience. So with you know, Simon Winlow and I started to research this, looking at the birth of the left, as all of these, you know it as well as I do, there's disparate organizations coming together, eventually forming through the Independent Labour Party, Party. And it seems as though this is simply how it's been from the very beginning. That's why we called it Back to the Future. So what we now is a return to its
1: host- Now, I'm surprised uh, that you think uh, it goes that far back, Uh, but I'll bow to your superior uh, academic knowledge uh, on that. I mean, I was just thinking, in the days when uh, Ernest Bevin uh, was a power in the land and uh, Lother and uh, all these other uh, trade union giants were uh, big fish, big powerful fish in labor politics, Uh, They would have been unlikely uh, to go along uh, with the arc of Labour's narrative, which has ended up with Labour uh, campaigning to keep freedom of movement of cheap labour into the British labour market as some kind of article of faith. I don't think the old style British trade union leaders would have gone along with that.
14: No, I would agree with you, because I think in 19, the 1940s was a blip in this process, the 1940s after the war, when the middle-class elite regarded the working class as, you know, the salt of the earth who had helped them win the war, so they owed them something. And we had this landslide victory, we had this flood of working-class MPs who'd been active throughout the 30s, but don't forget them, the McDonald and Henderson Um, foibles of the early 1930s where they they made a mess of everything. So they were coming back, and in the the 1940s, they they flooded back into the Labour Party and started to establish a narrative that was at least partly based on working-class experience, working-class vision, and working-class needs. So that was the – you're talking about the period that was a blip. But ever since then, and you know as well as I do, of course, uh, Crosslands – Future of Socialism changed all of that. When he started talking about the middle-class cultural values being just as important as working-class needs, and so from the late 50s, that began to change again and move back towards its origins. So I would agree with you, but I think we're talking at a time in history when there was a real change. And look what happened in 45, National Health Service, state owned related pensions, education, everything. That was the radical decade for me, not the 1960s, which was just a flurry of drugs and sex. We're living now still in the legacy of the National Health Services, and the last bastion of that wonderfully radical decade. So I agree with you. That was, that, was a, that was a different time. But now it's starting to return to its origins before that period.
1: You used uh, the word there, culture, um, and that's my takeaway from the election campaign so yeah. far. The, uh, the Labour Manifesto undoubtedly contains a number of proposed reforms that would be beneficial to working-class people, particularly the promise to build a million homes in the course of that parliament, yeah. uh, which, would, uh, which would benefit working-class people massively, perhaps more than any other uh, proposed reform. And the increased support for the National Health Service is another uh, reform that clearly benefits working-class people more yes. than anyone else. However, my take... Certainly in the West Midlands, I'm there every day, on the street every day, uh, talking to hundreds, literally hundreds of people every day. Uh, I can't speak for the whole country, but in the West Midlands, Labour's problem uh, with the working class is a cultural one. The the working class people don't feel uh, that Labour are the same as them. They don't look like them, they don't sound like them, They don't have the same preoccupations, infatuations, somehow identity politics and so on. Uh, The climate change, Paul Mason tells us, this is the climate change election. But literally no one, no one in the West Midlands has given a second thought to the climate change agenda because they're actually shivering with cold in their houses, unable to heat themselves, choosing to feed or heat uh, their old mother and father living alone in, a, in, a, in, in an inadequate housing and so on. Uh, yeah. the, the, the gulf between the lived experience of the working class base that labor used to sit on, rest on, get elected on, yeah. and the London university educated, metropolitan, elite liberal political class that Labour has become, seems to me bigger than it's ever, ever been.
14: Yes, I think so. But again, this is a return to its origins. These are the narratives behind the the, the Labour Party at the beginning. Don't forget that uh, Sydney Webb's, even the Clause 4, was about outcomes. It wasn't about power. It was about people getting the fruits of their labor, but they're not making investment decisions and controlling the economy themselves. Even that was about outcomes. When you talk about the Green Party, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, 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 the Green narrative suffers from a, a, a huge problem, which is that it has failed consistently to put livelihoods at the front of its agenda. So it's a- don't give up fossil fuel, give up cars, give up this, uh, that and the other. Working people will say, well, what will I do for a livelihood in the midst of all this? So by failing to put that at the front of their narrative, again, it's, uh, as you say earlier, alienated working class people. Now, the other thing we found was, was that identitarianism, which was the big problem, the weaponization of various cultural issues such as racism, sexism, and um, homophobia... Uh, being used as sticks to hit working people over the head with them. I think 2016, after the referendum, was a huge of social media. Now, I know you use social media. I don't so much these days. I was virtually driven off Twitter. Um, the, the, the hostility shown by what you call the metropolitan middle class. I don't know if they're metropolitan. I think they're all over the place. But I, know, I guess probably right as a metaphor. Um, that the hostility was almost eugenicist. Was, you know, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables, they're almost talking about wanting this people to, older people to die. Off.
1: Well, some of them were openly, uh, you know. Yes. Uh, keep yes. looking at your watch, there's another uh, Brexiteer has died because they're all yes. old, thick, yep. ignorant, white, racist, racist homophobic, Seven. misogynistic. I mean, yep. I mean this, this narrative, apart from being... Utterly, completely wrong yeah. is, of course, driving more and more people away from those yeah. that are issuing out these insults. You so know, I, uh, you're, you're, you're all these things, but hey, vote for me.
14: Yes, and uh, Owen Jones, uh, I think writing in, uh, it might have been The Guardian, I don't know what it was. Uh, I, uh, um, I don't read it uh, these days, but, but he said t- uh, two weeks before, like, just the other day, Oh, perhaps we've got this wrong. We 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 want to stop harassing people who voted Leave, people from working class areas. A bit late. We need he their did. vote. I, I this is two weeks, two weeks before, before the election. Yeah. Yes, it, yeah, they spent three and a half years calling them xenophobes, racist, thick, ignorant, and, and, and um, you know w- w- other words that um, that we better not repeat on the Well, radio. well
1: he has even less uh, uh, excuse because he wrote a, a whole book called Chavs on the on this very subject and he wrote a column just before the referendum campaign started in 2016 advocating brexit he did a vault fast so complete that the rest of us who followed his original advice suddenly became part of the basket of deplorables. Absolutely, and
14: so did Mason. Mason was shilling for leave a few years ago, too. I mean, Larry Elliott is the only journalist who's, who's stuck to his guns. So what does this mean? This means that it's part of the lingua franca of liberal media. And to keep your job in media, you, 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 you've got to, to have a go at Brexiteers. You've got, you, you've got to put Brexiteers in that bracket. It seems quite obvious to me that, that such an incredible vote for is the product of, of, of peer pressure. It's the pressure of the, of the work. It, you don't know what they believe. And one of the things always I always I'm not bullying you at being judge, one of the things I always admire is your honesty and you stick to your principles. But these people seem to blow the wind, and that wind certainly seems to align with um, the the, the editorial policies of of the media in which they work. Yeah,
15: yeah.
1: yeah. Um, As Groucho Marx said, these are my principles, but if you don't like them, (laughs) I have others. Others, Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, what does all this mean uh, in practical terms? I used the phrase, it it was uh, uh, deliberately uh, baroque. Uh, The... Emboer's wasification of the left and the proletarianization of the right. So that now, Boris, 49% of working class people are going to vote for Boris Johnson. Only 17% of working class people are going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. That means that the, twice that, because Corbyn's on roughly 34 at the moment, between 30 and 34, that means that half of his vote is coming from non-working-class people. Now, that might be fine, because originally the idea was that we'd have a mass labor movement of working-class people and allies who were not working-class, the likes of Mr. Ben, Mr. Cripps, uh, Mr. uh, uh, um, uh, Crossman, and so on, who were not working-class, but were allies of the working-class. But that all got turned around, didn't it?
14: Well, I think it did. I think, OK, 49% are voting for Boris Johnson. But how many of that 49% are not voting for Boris Johnson as much as voting against what they think Jeremy Corbyn represents? And probably think wrongly, because I don't think Corbyn's such a bad bloke. No, that's right. Um, I don't think he's entirely in the pockets of the metropolitan liberal left, if we want to call them that. Um, uh, And so I think they're they're voting negatively. And the problem is that we're living not just in the era of post-truth, we're living in the era of negative politics. You're voting for somebody because you don't like the other. And don't forget, in 2016, now don't quote me on this, I think it was 34% didn't vote. Yeah. Now, I think a lot of that, you know, I don't know exactly how many, I'm not a political scientist. Well,
1: there'll be, be more this time, because it's going to be dark yeah. at half past three, and it's going yeah. to be bitterly cold. Yeah,
14: yeah, yeah. Certainly older people and people, and, and some people uh, with kids might, might not bother turning up. but, you'll, but certainly, 34%. Where I, I, where I, where I am, there'll per- not
1: be more than 60% people voting.
14: Yeah, yeah, I think that's 34%, and whatever it is this time, the percentage of that percentage that were constituted by working people I think was very high. And these are the people that Labour are not getting through to. Some people are drifting to the right, and you know yourself because you read our book uh, three yeah. years ago, that yeah. some a minority, not, not an electoral force, but a minority are drifting to the far, far right. So that sort of area from the centre right to the far right, you're seeing this drift into that space of, of, of former Labour voters. And we can't afford to lose these people. We can't afford people to become cynical and stop voting. There's always been a, a, a large percentage of, of uh, well, not a large percentage, I mean, the was very, very small in 1945, wasn't it? In 1945, we had clear messages when, as you say, even the middle class members of the Labour Party or allies of the working class, they talked in the working class language, they talked about economics, they talked about jobs, they talked about prosperity. They didn't harangue them about residual cultural prejudices. Now, don't get me wrong, we must get rid of these cultural prejudices. But that's an educational issue. It's a cultural issue. If we stick to the politics that affect us, all politics about the issues that affect everyone, national health service, jobs, prosperity, and, yes, the Green New Deal is important, but you've got to somehow inject public money into the system to create a job guarantee program. I'm very keen on the modern monetary theory. Um, um,
1: Do you think the the Labour Party is savable if they lose this general election? I personally don't. I think there'll be a need for a new uh, working-class uh, political force because uh, if Jeremy Corbyn couldn't do it, I'm assuming that he won't. Of course, I hope yeah. that he does. Uh, but if Jeremy Corbyn can't do it, Emily Thornberry, Lady Nuggie, certainly ain't going to do it or even try to do it.
14: No, I, I, the, the thought of these people moving back in, in, into the, the leadership is horrific. I mean, i would I, I, I'd, I'd be honest with you, I resigned last year when John MacDonald accepted the fiscal credibility rule, which give, puts bankers in charge of how much public spending we can have. Uh, it was a, that's a nonsense. So, so I, I resigned.
6: Well, I've got something
14: an com- argument in my ward branch. <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> and, got, and, and I've got
1: something coming along very soon. I hope you'll yeah. join us in it. Professor Steve Hall, emeritus professor of criminology on his article, Back to the Future, on the British liberal left's return to its origins. A fascinating man, great writer. I urge you to read that article. He's not on social media as much now, and personally, I think that's a pity. Let's take a short break
2: breaking news expert analysis and exclusive stories all in one place radio sputnik telling the untold i'm sputnik with max kaiser and stacy herbert tune
4: in well, maybe mention maybe mention like central bankers and and you know markets are doubling down not you're saying everybody's doubling
13: down they're crazy
2: they are everyone's crazy radio Sputnik we speak your language find us at sputniknews.com
0: global higher education with one of the world's best-known iconoclasts, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway.
6: This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Bio TV News. This is
7: Dr. Bill Honigman of Progressive Democrats of America, PD, America.org. Hey,
0: everybody. My name is Tim Black of The Tim Black Show. This is Tom Longo of Gold, Goats, and Guns.
12: Hello, this is Benny Johnson. Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That.
9: This is Jamal
5: Thomas from
9: The Progressive Soapbox.
5: Hey, this is Raheem from D.C.
13: This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan.
9: When I'm waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for the day. I tune to Fault Line with Nixon and Stranahan.
5: The wokest radio show for your wokest AM.
9: These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy.
13: They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media.
5: Fault Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation. The best morning news show in America, Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio SpotNext.
3: Tune in every Monday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for our regular segment, Education for Liberation with Bill Ayers, where we take a look at the state of education across the country, what's happening in our schools, colleges, and universities, and what impact does it have on the world around us? Our resident expert is Bill Ayers, the legendary activist, educator, and author. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Monday and every Monday for Education for Liberation with Bill Ayers.
0: Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway.
1: The telephone number uh, is 02077 and if you're in the US 001 757 744 4480 or tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News and you can also of course Use the on air email on air at ggmotes.com, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm joined by Sean Atwood, who's an author and speaker. And the book that he has written, judging by its cover, I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, <laughs> seems to zero in on some of the culprits uh, that I have in my sights, also Bush and Clinton, the body count, the Clinton body count, all the mysterious deaths and disappearances, silences that have somehow overcome so many of the people who have been involved in the crimes of Bush and Clinton, Mr. and Mrs. And of course, because he's an expert on them, he's an expert on Jeffrey Epstein. He is Sean Atwood, and he joins me in the studio now. Sean, thanks very much for coming in. Let's, let's speak about your book first, and then I want to take advantage of your encyclopedic knowledge of the Epstein affair.
15: I served six years in Arizona State Prison, and I started writing about the prison industrial complex. Then I moved over to the war on drugs. That led me to Iran-Contra. So this book, first chapter, is about Linda Ives, mother of... One of the boys on the tracks, two kids, they'd seen a CIA drug drop, I believe, and they had been killed and laid down side by side on the railway tracks. The medical expert who was working for Bill Clinton, who was governor at the time of Arkansas, said they'd smoked so much weed they'd gone into a psychedelic trance, fallen asleep side by side on the tracks, and the train had run over them. Complete and utter nonsense. So the book takes you through Numerous victims of the Clintons, all the way to a Jeffrey Epstein at the end.
1: I'll need to ask you because the audience will what were you doing for six years in the Arizona prison system?
15: As a young person, I got interested in the stock market at 14. At 16, I was already trading it. Made a couple of million in the stock market in my 20s. Had no common sense or emotional maturity whatsoever. Started to throw Manchester style rave parties with it and had people smuggling ecstasy over from Holland. So I was knowingly breaking the law, take full responsibility. America was good for me. SWAT team smashed my door down, and I ended up in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail, which has got the highest rate of death in America. Mm. National Geographic Channel, they did my Bang Up Abroad episode. They researched 62 people died in that jail around the time I was there, over a five-year period. People looking at Epstein, they're saying, you know, how can this happen? How can be, people be killed in, in prison like this? They would kill you for $50 worth of heroin where I was housed. I've got videos of the guards murdering mentally ill prisoners. And these guys had hardly committed any serious crimes. And afterwards, those guards were actually given promotions and pay rises by the sheriff. People get killed by the guards. The guards don't intend to kill them. It goes too far. And sometimes the guards will string them up, make it look like a hanging, a suicide, just so they can get away with it.
1: Well, that brings us to Epstein, doesn't it? Because... Uh, The official narrative to date, it may change, is that uh, Epstein committed suicide and it just so happened that there were a very large number of powerful people very grateful to him for that because they were facing, had he stood trial again, uh, this time for his life, uh, a great deal of damaging testimony may well have emerged. Uh, so deal with that point first and then I'll ask you uh, how credible you think uh, the official story about how he committed suicide actually is?
15: Well, not just testimony. The lead investigator on the case, Joseph Ricurry, in the Florida Police Department, he didn't trust his superiors. Joseph Ricurry died mysteriously in his early 50s. He was completely healthy. It was a complete shock to his family. So he handed his files to another cop out of Florida, John Mark Duggan, because he thought that if he, this went to the top, it would just get covered up. John Mark Duggan fled to Russia, and he has recently looked at the stuff that was given to him by Rick and there are videos, sex tapes, taken by Epstein. Now, people said, is this guy telling the truth? How can we confirm this? I had an author friend who was in Russia at the time, who I've worked with for years, we write about the Colombian cocaine cartels, Ron Chepsiuk, he went and visited John Mark Duggan and looked at the sex tapes, and they were so horrified by what they saw, they stopped watching, but they saw people that they recognised, but they've not yet released those names. Of
1: course, uh, the parade of people going in and out of Epstein's townhouse, uh, the biggest in Manhattan, uh, which he got for precisely zero dollars uh, from, uh, from the Wexner uh, empire uh, is, uh, is quite uh, remarkable. It, one wonders what all these ex-presidents, would-be presidents, former prime ministers, aides to former prime ministers like Mandelson and Alistair Campbell and so on, one wonders what these people saw in this Mr. Epstein. What do you think it was? What was the
15: attraction? The attraction in Epstein, the allurement, the enticement, I believe, was him bringing people in, manipulating them into thinking, you know, they were just gonna get a massage from someone and then getting them into this thing whereby the massage is extended into sex acts with trafficked girls, so he would get this... Which he's taping. Which he's taping. I've gone over all the police reports. The police found cameras throughout the property in clocks Multiple victims Even in the bathroom. Multiple victim statements have said that he was taping these people, so it looks like a blackmail operation a blackmail
1: operation on behalf of Himself for power and influence or on behalf of state actors
15: I believe that he was in deep with the intelligence agencies on the way here I was reading the assassination of Robert Maxwell, you know plenty about him and how these operations are constructed they get the goods on the most powerful people around the world and use that as leverage over them because once you've got been filmed with a minor in a sex act there's no coming back from that
1: intelligence uh, agencies have always uh, sought what the russians call kompromat they've always gathered uh, intelligence from honey traps and so on but this would appear to be, if you'll forgive the pun, the, the mother of all honey traps, the mother of all compromat operations, because uh, we, we have President Clinton, we have would-be President Hillary Clinton, we have uh, Peter Mandelson, Alastair Campbell, Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel, a whole parade of rich and powerful people uh, in the United States. It's impossible that one of the intelligence agencies benefiting from this would not be the American intelligence agencies themselves, don't you think?
15: Well, if you go back to Maxwell, he was spying for the Mossad. So, you know, it's not clear yet.
1: I I mean, no doubt that uh, Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are connected to Israel, but that's small beer compared to the US intelligence apparatus.
15: Indeed. my research, going back to Clinton, you know, George Bush was bringing the cocaine with Oliver North into Arkansas. Clinton was providing the state security. And you asked about what was the attraction for these elites with Epstein. Clinton's not a hard one to hook. If you go back then, he was hammering the cocaine himself. His brother, Roger, was arrested for doing a cocaine transaction. And on the record, he said, brother Bill's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner for this stuff. There were multiple sexual assault cases settled out of court from around the time Bill Clinton was governor. He was a sleazeball from the go. That's why the CIA was bringing it into Arkansas. They knew he could, they could manipulate him like that. And um, these are testimonies that not come from conspiracy theorists. These testimonies are coming from the state police, the Arkansas state police, the people who are still alive, not in the Clinton body count, because some of them ended up in the Clinton body yeah, count. Tell
1: us about that, because it is... I mean, I'm not myself one of nature's conspiracy theorists, but it is a very dangerous pastime to have gotten close to Bill and Hillary Clinton.
15: It is. If you look at the people who were working for them, so they were, the state police, the Arkansas state police, were driving Bill around so he could have his sexual liaisons with various women. Some women, he was promising them jobs, telling to come to hotels, and that's where alleged sexual assaults occurred that ended up in out-of-court settlements. These guys the state police were taking him to, like, the main Arkansas area, where the state police were protecting the cocaine coming in. So this was highly sensitive information back at that time. Some of them who were blowing the whistle early on, you know, horrific things happened to them. Horrific things happened to uh, Larry Nichols was an insider who was working for ADFA, which was the Arkansas State Development Finance Authority. And he said when he blew the whistle, um, his life was threatened multiple times. Even to this day, he fears for his life. And he said they were washing through ADFA, which Bill Clinton had advertised as an entity that was going to boost employment for Arkansas. They said, Larry Nichols said, they were washing up to $100 million worth of month of cocaine money that was coming in. And to get that money out, ADFA was giving loans that were never paid back. To get a loan, you had to apply through Rose uh, law firm, Hillary's law firm, and pay them a money as well. So they were all deeply in the mix. And
1: all kinds of people, even as late as the ill-fated presidential run of Mrs. Clinton, have come a cropper, haven't they? Yes. People that were potentially involved in the leak of uh, Democratic Party emails and so on, kind of things that are now routinely uh, and falsely blamed on, on Julian Assange and on the Russians, but were in fact from Democrat Insiders. Some of them have just come to very untimely deaths.
15: Hillary Clinton has no morals whatsoever. Anyone who stood in the way of their rise to power has been dealt with. You can look at from Vince Foster to the people who Bill had allegedly sexually assaulted. Hillary tracked them down. She had investigators track them down not to, you know, find out who Bill was being unfaithful with or have sympathy for these women. These women were terrorised as well to keep silent so that Bill could rise to the presidency. And rise, indeed, he
1: did, though she was unable to uh, repeat the trick. Finally, on Epstein, uh, where do you see this story going? Because on the face of it, it's a simple case of suicide and now there will be no trial. Justice will not be done, but his estate might be worth... Uh, suing privately, so some of the victims will get compensation. Will that be the end of the matter? You see, I ask because tomorrow night uh, on British television, one of the victims uh, of allegedly a prince of the British royal family, uh, amongst others, is uh, doing uh, what will be, I think, a blockbuster television interview. Is this going to run and run,
15: or will it run into the sand? It's going to run and run. It took a small dip, and then Prince Andrew and his blabbermouth just rose it to all-time records. I've pored over the statements from Virginia, and God bless her, she's such a brave person. She alleged that she had sex with Andrew three times. The third time was an orgy with underage girls on the pedophile island. These girls were th- procured from Eastern Europe, they couldn't even speak English. Epstein was bragging, "These are the easiest girls to get because they can't even speak English." I believe they were procured by Jean-Luc Brunel, who should be a letter C in the co-conspiracy right now with Glenn Maxwell as B. Those guys should have international arrest warrants issued immediately. And it's beyond you know, I can't c- possibly comprehend how anyone else could be accused in court of such serious offences and what happens to Prince Andrew, the worst thing that happens to Prince Andrew, he he loses his birthday party. He's got to stand down from his charities. Anyone else would have been SWAT team raided. So it's going to keep going.
1: These are all denied, of course, uh, by him. Uh, He has not been charged. uh, Unusually, Uh, he has not even been interviewed, I think, by the British police, certainly not under caution as a suspect. Uh, But they are allegations, and he does deny them. I need to make that uh, clear. Do you think Virginia Roberts will prove a plausible uh, witness uh, on British television this week?
15: Anyone who had doubts about Virginia Roberts, most people, that has been completely cancelled by Prince Andrew's lies, inconsistencies, and his general demeanor and his lack of empathy and sympathy and remorse and the idiotic things he said on that BBC interview. I think the whole world right now has got bated breath and they just can't wait to see what she says tomorrow.
1: Sean, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'm definitely going to read your book. I hope the graphic of it is up. There it is. <laughs> Clinton, Bush and CIA conspiracies. You've definitely touched all bases uh, on, that, uh, on that front page. Uh, I must uh, say. Uh, so if you've got a point of view on any of these, let me know, Oh two oh seven seven nine eight two two five five, Or you can uh, tweet me, at George Galloway at RTUK News. Now, I was... Thanks very much, Sean. Just uh, uh, sit there for a moment until the break, if you don't mind. And if we get any calls on uh, your subject, you might be able to... Uh, respond uh, to them. Now, I need to finish the on this day because I only got through the Rosa Parks, uh, the uh, momentous day in 1955, but there is more. In 1990, on this day, Britain was linked to Europe for the first time when construction workers drilled through the final wall of rock to join the two halves of the tunnel. What could possibly go wrong. Uh, this linked uh, the UK with France. It took another four years before the tunnel was finally completed and at a cost of £12 billion double the original estimate plus a change. Well loose change actually, £12 billion is nothing now. Uh, the h uh, which will shave six minutes off the journey to Birmingham by train, is now going to cost £100. And 3 billion. Now, skipping back several decades, it was on this day in 1943 that the Beveridge Report was published, the blueprint for what was to become the National Health Service, and which has become a real point of contention in the present general election in the UK. It was, of course, a Labour government which in 1948 introduced the NHS and medical care for all free at the point of need. Further on in the week, it was on December the 7th that yet another event to change the course of history took place in 1941 when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and brought America belatedly into World War II. And on the 8th of December, in 1989, former Beatle John Lennon was shot dead in New York City. Let's hear from John in Gravesend. Go ahead, John.
16: very good evening to you, George. Uh, I'm greatly concerned about the border force or the lack of it and the general security in this country. Me too. And I don't understand why the military, I'm ex-forces myself, you have spearhead battalions that are there for an emergency and are on standby for a period of time. I don't understand why certain periods of the year certain selected units can to, uh, be be given the status all the all the uh, soldiers be given uh, trained and you'd be given the status of special constable and they still retain their uniforms and rank and everything else they go to ramsgate margate hartleypool wherever and they they perform uh, border duties, but they're given the powers of special constable. It also gives the guys a chance if they, after they've finished their military career, of moving directly into the police force.
1: Well, they say make that, them dual role. They say that great minds uh, think alike, uh, John. Uh, I was myself this very morning thinking this exact thing. Uh, it's quite clear to me, first of all, that the border is not actually uh, guarded. Uh, there are, uh, I think at least 10,000 miles of coastline, almost none of it is guarded. And even uh, most of our ports are not guarded. Even our airports are not properly guarded. When was the last time anybody watching or listening to this show was pulled over by customs and their baggage uh, searched, for example? And I was thinking of it in the context of the so-called war on drugs that never actually really was a war at all. Nobody actually tried to stop Uh, the, uh, the entry into this island, which should be uh, a a benefit to us being an island, but only if you actually control who and what comes into your island, and we have not been doing that. Secondly, it's quite clear uh, that we need far more people, particularly in areas that are obvious, potentially, uh, potential targets for terrorists, and we need them uh, from time to time, and uh, especially when threat levels are high or anniversaries loom or events like the killing of al-Baghdadi take place. It was just very, very good luck, you know, that a police car was coming across the bridge precisely at the point that these men were wrestling on the ground with this guy. Uh, It was not intelligence-led, they had no idea, Uh, that this man was going to do what he did. It was good fortune that the police were there and that they acted so efficiently, but nobody else was on the bridge. Uh, We should be using ex-forces people, as well as getting our police numbers up, as well as better quality intelligence services, democratically accountable, otherwise, we're not really fighting this terror threat at all, John, are we?
16: No, and no, I, I think, I think the, the, the soldiers would be glad of that change of, of role. They'd be given, you know, as I said, properly trained special power, you know, special constable powers. Uh, because I've always joked if the Wehrmacht had come across the channel unarmed in rubber boats, we, we could have been invaded without a shot being fired. In the Second World War, I mean, it's a joke. People keep people just walk into this country.
1: Well, and, I've got and, uh, off. I've I've got my first novel called Queensway on this very subject coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks. You'll enjoy it, John. If you let our people know your address, I'll send you a copy uh, for review. It uh, it's counterfactual history. It presupposes that exactly what you just said actually did happen, and the Hitlerites landed without opposition uh, at the uh, southern coast of Britain. Thank you very much indeed for an excellent uh, call. Here's a good one from Lawrence Latham in Sutton Coldfield. I was in there in Sutton Coalfield just yesterday. Uh, Hi, George. Why weren't the ex-prisoners attending such a sensitive meeting not searched on entering the building? Enjoy your programme. Lawrence, what a blindingly brilliant point. All these offenders, ex-prisoners, people on license, and a terrorist on license, were not even searched at the door, not even a pat down, never mind an x-ray, never mind a wand, somebody can go in to the fishmonger's hall in the city of London with two knives and a gun and a fake suicide vest, and nobody notices, it's deeply shocking. I must say. George, following up a news item on last week's show, the BBC apparently edited out laughter during the Leader's Question Time programme. It came after an audience member posed a question to Boris Johnson about whether he could be trusted. I wonder, George, if you had been on the spot like Boris, would you have thought that question was a reasonable one for the BBC to select when the Prime Minister is there to be interrogated? No politician is going to reply that no. I can't be trusted after all. Love the show, says Tony Getliff in Leicester. That was uh, one of a long series of disgrace that the BBC has brought itself into uh, in this general election campaign, and indeed long before it. Over the last four years, at least, the BBC has been plumbing ever lower depths. And it would be an abuse of this platform for me to say what I plan to do about that, but I will do shortly from another platform. I've still got a poll. What's the best counter-terrorism measure? You can vote on my Twitter feed, and there'll be a new poll right after the news, which comes up right now.
0: Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway.
6: This is Tom Carter, a political reporter in New York
9: for Verizon Files TV News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, progressive Democrats from America pdamerica.org. America Tata, org. Hey, everybody. My name is Tim Black. Of
0: the show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold, Coast & Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson.
12: Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That.
5: This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C.
13: This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan.
10: When I'm
9: waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for today. I tune to Fault Lines with Nixon
5: and Stranahan the wokest radio show for your wokest AM.
9: These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy.
13: They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media.
5: Paul Lyons is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Ali and Garland. They always treat
7: me uh, from either side with due respect and it's a wonderful conversation.
5: The best morning news show in America. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself. Right here on Radio Sputnik.
2: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com.
7: Sputnik News.
3: The second victim of Friday's terrorist attack on London Bridge has been named as 23-year-old Saskia Jones. She is a former Cambridge University student. The first victim to be named was 25-year-old Jack Merritt. Following the attack, the two main political parties in Britain's general election are blaming each other for the early release from prison of the terrorist, Usman Khan. Khan, who had served half of his sentence, went on a murderous rampage which was brought to an end after members of the public overpowered him. He was then shot dead by armed police after he revealed what turned out to be a fake suicide vest. The U.K. Ministry of Justice has also launched an urgent review. 74 other people jailed for terror offenses and released early are to have their license conditions reviewed. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson claims that scrapping early release would have stopped Khan. Labor is blaming budget cuts for what it called mischances to intervene. 28-year-old Khan had been previously jailed over a plot to bomb the London Stock Exchange in 2009. He was initially sentenced to indeterminate detention, which would have allowed him to be kept in prison beyond the minimum term. But in 2013, the Court of Appeal quashed the sentence, replacing it with a 16-year fixed term of which Khan should serve half in prison. He was released on license in December 2018, subject to what authorities described as an extensive list of license conditions. An Irish citizen who became an Islamic state bride has been arrested after arriving back in Dublin. Well, Lisa Smith and her daughter traveled from Turkey after being deported arriving in Ireland today. She was arrested on landing and it is expected she will now be interviewed by police about suspected terrorist offenses. Plans have also been made for the care of her two-year-old daughter who was born in Syria but is an Irish citizen. Police in New Orleans say there have been 11 victims of a shooting incident in the city's French Quarter tourist hub. U.S. media quoted one officer as saying two people were in critical condition. No fatalities have been reported. The incident took place on Canal Street between Bourbon and Chartres streets at about 3.20 local time today. Police said on their Twitter feed that one suspect had been apprehended near the scene, while they later said the person's possible involvement was still under investigation and that no arrests had been made. Video footage from the scene showed numerous police vehicles cordoning off an area as forensic teams made checks while the French Quarter has been hosting holidaymakers, marking the weekend after Thanksgiving. On this weekend in 2016, a man was killed and nine other people wounded in a shooting on Bourbon Street. In June 2014, another shooting incident on the same street left one person dead and nine injured. People in China are now required to have their faces scanned when registering new mobile phone services as the authorities seek to verify the identities of the country's hundreds of millions of Internet users. The regulation announced in September came into effect today. The government says it wants to protect the legitimate rights and interests of citizens in cyberspace. China already uses facial recognition technology to survey its population. And finally, US composer Irving Burgie, who helped to popularize Caribbean music with hit songs like Deo, has died aged 95. His death was confirmed by Barbados Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley, who called for a movement of silence for the man who wrote its national anthem. He was best known for helping singer Harry Belafonte bring calypso music to the mainstream. The 1950s song Deo went on to not only be used in films, adverts, and even as a wake-up call for astronauts in space. The calypso hit featured in the popular film Beetlejuice and had been sampled by rapper Lil Wayne and singer Jason Derulo. His website says his songs have sold more than 100 million records worldwide. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn.
0: You're listening to Radio Sputnik Sputnik. 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 Telling the Untold Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves With George Galloway. Galloway Only on Sputnik Radio
1: Who will use the most hairspray at the NATO summit in London? A. Donald Trump B. Boris Johnson C. Emmanuel Macron Get voting. That's poll number two on my Twitter feed. The last hour, as always, largely belongs to you for your calls, your emails and your tweets. People are listening this week from the following new locations. Denmark, Amsterdam, Spain and Algeria. And uh, Tues Times says, what has Gigi got to say about the coup and deaths in Bolivia? I spoke about it at some length, and I hope, effect, uh, as it was literally happening uh, here on the show. Brill Smith says, maybe if Boris didn't cut 21,000 police and make major cuts to the prison system, mental health, anti-knife programs, and so on, this terrorist attack wouldn't have happened. Well, uh, I'm against uh, all of those things, uh, but trust me, that wouldn't have stopped this knife attack from happening because this terrorist attack comes out of a different swamp uh, altogether. uh, And and, and also I need to point out, it wasn't Boris Johnson that cut the 21,000 police. It was uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg's conservative and liberal... Democrat coalition government never forget that Scott says my vote is Labour, but no need for a people's vote Well, of course if you vote Labour and Labour get in there is going to be a people's vote Uh, That much is certain because of course in 2016. It wasn't people that voted it was Russian bots What done it? (laughs) Shockwave says the way I see it Canada needs a yellow vest movement and Jerry O'Neill says, America and its satellite state, hashtag Apartheid Israel, is trying to put its puppets in government and influential groups around the world. And Stephen McKenna says, when Russia fights ISIS, they are wrong. Uh, are the West against ISIS or not? Uh, an unanswerable point. If we were serious about destroying ISIS and Al-Qaeda, we would have allied with Russia, to crush them on the battlefield in Syria. Instead, we armed them to go into the battlefield in Syria. Uh, Quentin Paulson, NATO, says NATO is a military organization designed to perpetrate, I think he means perpetuate, Western global hegemony, sorry if that uh, didn't make all that much sense. It's been chopped badly. My apologies, uh, Quentin. Uh, Uh, Here's uh, an email from Ray Jones. I honestly believe the state worry more about the cost of keeping terrorists in jail than protecting the general public once they are released. You only need to look at sentences dished out for general crime. You'll go down for years for robbing a post office or the like, but get a suspended sentence for mugging and beating up a pensioner. Priorities are wrong in the UK. It sickens me. I have no sympathy for the murderer shot dead I believe you reap what you sow in this life, and my thoughts are with the loved ones of his victims. May they rest in peace. Amen. Thank you for that, Ray Jones. VOB says, stop selling them weapons. We've been doing it for 100 years. And Metis Rebel says, stop bombing people so they aren't made mad enough to kill you back. Now, calls for me and for Adam, hashtag AskAdam, if you've got a question that you want to put to either Adam or myself, now is the time. No point in bellyaching about his social media output. Here's the man, <laughs> ready to answer In a Anything, proper forum. You've got to say 20 77 Here's Richard in Manchester. Richard, welcome. Good.
8: Good evening, George. Good evening,
1: Adam. Thank you Good for evening. having me on your show tonight. Welcome. George,
8: um, I was a little bit disappointed at some of the things that you said tonight with regards to uh, Boris Johnson. Today I watched an absolutely remarkable interview with with, Mar, with Andrew Marr, and he had a sheet of paper, as he did with um, Nigel Farage, uh, a, f- a, few, a couple of months ago. And Farage picked him up and he said, look, I've come here for you to congratulate me, if you want to, on getting a majority to go back and uh, take my MEPs Back to fight our cause in the EU. And why don't you... And he just kept... No, I want you to answer this question and this question and the same thing. I don't know if you had time, because I know you're a busy guy to watch it, but it was an absolute BBC disgrace what happened today to the Prime Minister. I am not a Conservative George. I've talked to you a few times. Yeah. i talked to you about my father being a coal miner, and being a socialist and having a lot of kids in the family, yeah. and we were very poor. But now... Exactly what your last guest and yourself, as an intelligent man, said. These elites, and we all know who they are, are now saying the 17.4 million people who voted were absolutely stupid. And I say to them, I had a good education. My father gave me a good education. And like you, George, you had the education of life. But we didn't prostitute ourselves for money. We didn't prostitute our morals. We were taught to look after the people a little bit less better off than us, and certainly the poor people. And that's all gone by the board. And then Gina Miller comes on today to say to Sky News, and this was another disgrace, if you don't mind me, mind me saying so, that she is now a pollster, and look at these polls, <laughs> and to tell everybody... Not sure now I they trust any that-
1: poll conducted by her.
8: Oh, yeah. She's now got a a poll, and she talks about algorithms. I don't think she even knows, with respect to her, what an algorithm is, but that was a word given to her before she went on the show. It's all abracadabra
11: to her.
1: (laughs) Sorry? Adam says it's all abracadabra to her.
8: Oh, exactly.
1: But look, Richard, I've got your point, and it's well made. Uh, I'll let Adam answer it first before I tell you what I think. Um, It's my take... Adam, that Boris Johnson has drastically underperformed in this general election and that his media interviews have been woeful, lamentable. What's your take?
11: Well, I agree with that, and I'll get to Boris in a second, but I think that far from pinning this on Boris, who's only been in there for a few months, I blame Roy Jenkins, I blame the national government of Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin, and successive generations of ultra-liberal judges and barristers too busy slapping themselves on the back to realize that they were going to create generations of miscreants, terrorists, and other violent troublemakers because in the liberal mind, compassion is shown to the criminal where I believe compassion should be shown to the innocent people who need to go about their daily lives free of all kinds of crime, from the so-called petty up to the kind of terrorist atrocity we saw the other day. Now, on to Boris. Yeah, Boris isn't the best interviewee. Uh, he couldn't exactly go up in front of the Senate of the United States and talk about Iraq as you could and frankly he couldn't stand before extremely hostile interviews as Farage did, even going back to the UKIP days when not necessarily all of the country knew who he was but all of the media elite knew who he was. They hated him but he could take it. That notwithstanding I thought that more was quite disgraceful. It was less than 24 hours after a heinous terrorist atrocity, one about which many questions need to be answered and many new ways, I would say going back to the old ways of thinking, need to be re-examined. But you've got to let a prime minister in that situation make a point. It so happens that this atrocity happened during an election. But the prime minister's role during such an interview, the first he gave to any media outlet since the atrocity, it needs to be about clarification. And with more constantly interrupting, uh, it was a bit like he wanted to get the third best prize award for an impersonation of Paxman intervening, uh, interrogating Michael Howard when he asked him the same question, I think, three dozen times or something. But this wasn't that sort the, of occasion. The, the Andrew Neil substitute award. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he clearly failed that one because the thing with Andrew Neil he's a tough interviewer, one of the toughest in the business, but Mo was just almost a caricature of that. And I've, I've seen many of Mo's interviews. Some of them have been okay, to be fair. But I just thought, let the man speak, then offer an alternative point of view in the course of the interrogation. But let the man speak, especially less than 24 hours after that attack.
1: Uh, Last word to our caller. Richard, are you still there? Thank you
8: very much indeed. That was what you two gentlemen have just said. You are telling the truth. These people are coming on and they're trying to stop people from voting. And they, she actually voted. Uh, she actually voiced an opinion that we want a hung parliament. And she was laughing as she said it. Please, she's saying to the electorate. Oh, don't they're desperate
1: for a hung parliament. Yeah, that's
11: true. Because it keeps because, the lawyers in charge.
1: Yeah, uh, they don't want uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Heaven forfend. Uh, nope. But they don't want Boris Johnson either. They want to steal Brexit from us. No. And that can, only, that can only be done, uh, or best be done, from their point of view, uh, with a hung parliament. That's what they are absolutely determined to bring about. But I hold to my view that I expected Boris Johnson to be a far better communicator than he has turned out to be. Uh, it seems that all that expensive education doesn't buy you uh, necessarily a great deal of common sense. Richard, thanks for the call. Let's hear from Daniel in Humberside. Go ahead, Daniel. Hello, George. Hi Good there.
8: On YouTube. Thank you. Uh, just kind of linked into the last question, really, just with regards to Labour. Yeah. Uh, my area is Humberside, so obviously have got Hull, Grimsby. I think these are pretty much Labour strongholds. uh, I think
1: think Labour will lose seats in Hull to the Brexit party, that's my prediction.
8: Yeah, and uh, the prediction as
1: well in Grimsby, which I think has been a Labour seat since the 30s. Uh, The Brexit party Um, may also win that.
8: Yeah, even the uh, Tory are pushing on. So yeah, basically my question is, do you think the... Because it's kind of here, it's my dad voted for Labour, my granddad did, mm. everyone did. He's there, the party, mm. the working class. Do yeah. you think Labour have lost the uh, British working class?
1: Uh, well, up to a point, uh, they definitely have. Of course, the working class itself has changed its uh, outward characteristics. Uh, yeah. It is, yeah. uh, so it is composed definition. of, yeah. uh, I call our workers in state and local state uh, employment. It is uh, composed yeah. of people in insecure, uh, temporary contracts and even zero-hours contracts. It's not the working yeah. class, Daniel, that we uh, knew uh, in the yeah. past, gathered in big workplaces of many hundreds, even many thousands of workers. Right. But the working class is still the working class. The definition yeah. of a working class person is a person who depends upon their labor to live who, if their wage or salary uh, didn't come through, have nothing else to live on. Uh, And uh, there's eh? undoubtedly the case that uh, a section of the industrial working class and the sons and daughters of that industrial working class have moved decisively away from labor. In Humberside, in the East Midlands, in the West Midlands, in the Northeast of England, We've had several calls over recent weeks in that parts of the Northwest, not the city of Manchester, but the surrounding area around Manchester, parts of South Wales, and not necessarily yeah, for political well, yeah. economic uh, reasons, because I hold to the view that Labour's uh, program is, would be yeah. more beneficial to uh, such people, yeah. uh, but for cultural reasons. Uh, they are repelled yeah. by Labour. They don't see in Labour. Anything uh, that relates to them, they don't look like or sound like or feel like or think like working class people uh, do in this country. That's my take. It's more a culture war uh, type of thing. Adam, your take on this.
11: Well, I think that's spot on. I was talking last week about tone and the famous uh, argument that Ted Heath and Enoch Powell, two conservatives, oh, yes. tone, had yes, yes. at the time, and it, it's very much like that. As a, speaking from a musician's point of view, a lot of people misunderstand European classical music because they think that this, just because the ...a piece, it's going to be performed in a certain kind of way. And anyone who frequents classical concerts or collects recordings as I do knows that the interpretation of that famous piece of music is as important and in some cases even more important because of the level of individuation than the notes on the score, which are merely signposts for an autistic endeavor. Now, Labour is not speaking the language of regular people. And there's regular people in all classes uh, because someone who's regular by definition is someone who's the norm rather than something heterodox. Labor have plowed in, they've gone into this breach of heterodox thinking, heterodox speaking, and heterodox actions that are just incompatible with the man in the Clapham omnibus, to use an old phrase, the man on the high street. They're quite popular on the Clapham omnibus. The problem well, because is Clapham's the, different than it yeah, used to
1: be. The problem is they're not as popular as they uh, should be and once were on the uh, Wolverhampton to West indeed, Bromwich tram. Indeed. Uh, that's their problem. Uh, oh, that's the huge problem. That's why the national opinion polls... Uh, which are not insurmountable for labor. I mean, there is a big difference, but it's not an insurmountable one. But elections, as you know, are fought in individual constituencies. And uh, therefore, they're all dominoes, if you imagine them standing up uh, in a a vertical way right across the country. Now, what I get all day and every day is, first of all, I believe uh, an unjustified but real hatred of Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, uh, Tom Watson and co were not making that up. Uh, Maybe uh, it was them that helped create it. Uh, I don't rule that out. But all day people tell me they hate Jeremy Corbyn. And I, as a candidate, standing not in his party, uh, am forced to (laughs) defend uh, (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, from unjust attack. I don't, I identify with the justifiable attack on various things, and Brexit in particular, but uh, I get hatred of Jeremy Corbyn throughout uh, the day and every day. I get hatred of uh, the apparent preoccupation uh, of Labour with liberal nostrums, uh, liberal on crime and punishment, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, Liberal on issues of national security, liberalism on issues of race and gender, politics, uh, which uh, crystallizes around the issue of free movement. You see, people say to me all day, I'm against large numbers of workers who are ready to work for less than me coming from Eastern Europe. They are white people, just like me, they say. So how am I a racist Quite right. for wanting to stop the labor market being flooded with people who, for whom two pounds an hour would be a 100% increase in their wages. Now in the past, a working class labor party would have leapt on that and they would have carried it all the way to the finishing line. They would have been the champion of the workers. They would have said, we will not allow cheap labor uh, to undercut our uh, standards here in the uh, labor market and so on. Instead, labor seems to turn on the people and call them racist, even though everyone involved is white, right? uh... Call them racist for being concerned about that. And this is what I mean by the culture war issue.
11: Yeah. And it's one that runs very deep because Labour has, in fact, declared this kind of war on, call it working class England, call it middle England, think of any other noun, adjective or verb to describe it. But they've declared war on it and people can sense it, even if they can't articulate it. Well, no politician, frankly, could articulate it as well as that. But they feel it and they know that something is rotten in the state of deepest Islington and that this Labour Party cannot relate to and, in fact, resents the people of the black country the northwest, of the northeast, of South Wales, there's something where all you need to do is, frankly, listen to their speeches, their tone, the style of language they use, the issues that they think are holier than all others, and the issues which they discard and spit upon. It's not just the issues that they're discarding and spitting upon, it's the people. And this level of resentment shows and no matter what people in these traditional labor, working class areas, think of the Tories or the liberals or anyone else, the betrayal that Labour has wrought upon them is always going to be the most unkindest cut, because this was supposed to be the party of the factory worker whose job was stolen. It was supposed to be the party of the carpenter whose wages were stolen. It was supposed to be the party of the mother who wants to walk her children down safe streets while her husband is earning his daily bread. And Labour had been... Trade all of these people, and worse than that, they call them every name in the book in Parliament, on the platforms, on the BBC, on social media. And it's not going to surprise me at all if Labour are wiped out in these places that, frankly, helped to build the Labour Party.
1: It's a serious uh, problem. Of course, the Conservatives were the ones who cut the police force, and Conservative and Labour governments have been guilty of this uh, liberal. Uh, Justice uh, system that we that we have I mean equally guilty. How how does it? uh, How does it happen that a terrorist prisoner can be released not even half but less than halfway through their sentence? I mean does nobody you know think of that does nobody think that's actually Highly dangerous thing to do because how can you be sure and as it's turned out there was no certainty justified in any way how can you be sure that, that uh, this man, uh, Usman Khan, has recanted on his previous intention to murder politicians, blow up the city, blow up Westminster in just six years? His reformed character in just six years? What nonsense is this?
11: Well, these judges are either busy calling normal people racist, even though Islam isn't a race, or they're afraid of being called it themselves. They're afraid of being called xenophobic, even though the man was born in England. And something that I entirely expected, but many others perhaps weren't, is that when I restated my long-held support for the reinstation of capital punishment, some of those who were most supportive of me were people on social media, who are Muslims, some identified themselves that way to me, some from their names and even from their places of residence it 's obvious to any observer because in countries that have been the victims of war, been the big victims of civil strife, they know that a terrorist doesn 't change its spots, and that any time that you take to placate the terrorist is essentially a theft not only of resources but of peace and of life for the law-abiding people. And it just so happens that the vast majority of these liberals who have made these laws that are soft on crime and hard on the innocent people, they happen to be Lo and behold, old white males, like the kind that Channel 4 makes fun of. So it's okay for an old white male to let a terrorist out of prison for the Channel 4 type of people, but it's not okay when an older white male votes for Brexit. At the end of the day, it all comes down to wanting to destroy tradition, and they use the race card to forward this agenda no matter what direction it's going in. 02077-982-255,
1: that's the number to call to respond to Adam or myself in the final half hour of the show. Let's take a quick break.
0: You're listening to Radio Sputnik. By any means necessary
2: is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration.
3: No longer am I interested in or concerned with prison reform. I am interested only in the eradication of prisons. To the battle
2: between police and water protectors.
4: It was a pretty
3: punishing
4: disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons on
5: peaceful, prayerful uh, water protectors.
2: From efforts to protect the environment.
5: The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with you know the right of both science and morality to fight them on this.
2: To the movement for black lives.
6: When I first saw the Michael Brown video When I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me
0: shocked.
2: Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com.
0: George Galloway, and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees.
2: We are talking
0: 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik,
2: telling the untold.
0: The mother of all talk shows, the only education you can get for free, only on Sputnik Radio.
1: Who will use the most hairspray at the NATO summit? 56% of you say Donald Trump. 9% of you say Boris Johnson. A uh, Chance would be a fine thing. I'd kind of like to take hold of him and give his hair a brush, never mind a hairspray. Emmanuel Macron, 35 I'm not sure that I agree with the findings of that poll. For me, the biggest popinjay uh, of the three is Emmanuel Macron. I could see him standing up on a box, of course, spending a lot <laughs> of time at the bathroom mirror. Uh, you can vote on my Twitter page at George Galloway. 0207982255. That's the number to call, as Dave in Poland already has, and he's on the next. Uh, call. Dave, welcome.
6: Hi, George. Thank you.
1: Lovely to hear from you. What are you doing in Poland?
6: Uh, living here at the moment. Excellent. I am, uh, <laughs> Yes, sir. I'm an American citizen, but I'm living in Warsaw, Poland right now. And uh, you'll have to excuse me. I'm a little bit nervous. First time caller, long time listener.
1: Just take your time, my friend. You're most welcome.
6: Of course. And uh, I just wanted to say, first of all, that uh, I just got a chance last night to watch your debate with uh, uh, Chris Hitchens.
1: Ah, yes. And the grapple in the <laughs> apple. <laughs>
6: that, that was a fun watch for anybody who hasn't oh, seen this. Yes.
1: You know thousands of people paid top dollar uh, to watch two British guys knock lumps out of each other in a, in a, in a hall in New York. That's not bad, actually, is it?
11: And it wasn't even
1: the Epstein trial. No, <laughs> and Epstein hadn't happened yet, or at least his defenestration hadn't. Anyway, no, that
6: was a good 15 go years. Go ahead, Dave. No, but the, the reason I called was uh, because you, were, you had mentioned uh, Syria in the opening of your show. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up was, you know, when it comes to terrorism, especially in the United States, you know, one of the things that uh we don't often hear about because of our media being so horrible, is uh regardless of fighting an ideology, you know, which radical Islam is, one of the things that Representative Tulsi Gabbard did do and uh, was introduce the Stop Arming Terrorist Act yeah. in twenty seventeen. <laughs> she did? Yes. And uh, unfortunately since then uh it's only had 14 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives and the Senate version which was co-introduced by Rand Paul has had zero co-sponsors and I think that is one of the most ridiculous things for the fact that one we need to have an act that says stop arming terrorists introduced and two the fact that only 14 co-sponsors in the House and zero co-sponsors in the Senate uh, are on board with this bill it, to me that's just an outrage and well, I, I,
1: I, I do think that that I mean this is first-time call but it's an exceptionally good one uh, and it uh, demonstrates uh, beyond contradiction the utter hypocrisy of our political class uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to terrorism we are deeply compromised by a collaboration Uh, And collusion uh, with terrorists according to uh, who they are fighting and I want uh, you may not have heard me say this And for those who haven't heard me say it and apologies to those who have I was once trapped in a lift With William Hague when he was the foreign minister of Britain imagine his horror uh, being in a lift with only me and the lift broke down and he had no idea how long he was going to have to suffer uh, the slings and arrows of my uh, criticism. And I made the point to him, it was stuck there for long enough, uh, that I said, William, you've been wrong before. In fact, you've been wrong most of your life. But you've never been insane before. The policy you're following of arming and financing and giving diplomatic, political, and media support to the Islamist head choppers in Syria is literally insane. First of all, if it succeeds, it will put Al Qaeda and ISIS, well, ISIS wasn't then formed really, it will put Al Qaeda uh, flags on the top of all government buildings in Damascus, next door to Israel, and on the Mediterranean. What could possibly go wrong? And secondly, if it succeeds or if it fails, all these people who you're putting knives in the hands of, will one day come back here and haunt us? And I said, portentously, as it turned out, even in this building, looking for you and looking for me. And so it came to pass. Dave in Poland, thanks. Don't be a stranger. Call us any time. James is in Kerfili. James, go ahead.
8: Oh, hello, George. Hello,
1: Adam. Uh, Great to speak to
8: you. Um, I I was just wondering really about... um, Obviously, you know, I don't really know anything
9: about politics. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know anything. But, you, you, you know, I was just wondering about um, uh, ranked choice voting like they have in sort of San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I was just wondering if that would, you know, be a good idea to sort of implement that, you know, at the general elections in this country. If, you know, if that would sort of solve the... Uh, yeah, well, no, uh, I,
1: I, I am and all my life have been in favor of proportional representation. I think that Adam is against it, so let's give the floor to him
11: first. Adam. Well, I've thought long and hard about proportional representation because it has ups and downs. Not a particularly ideological matter, not that that would matter to me. I'm not a particularly ideological man. But I've thought of a compromise, and again, it goes back to the past rather than tries to reinvent the wheel. The... The notion that there's only one member of parliament per constituency is a fairly recent one. In fact, the last multi-member constituencies, they happen to be the university constituencies, were only abolished in 1948 by the Attlee government. I think one of the better forms of proportional representation would to allow constituencies to have more than one member. And this would allow you to have fewer constituencies, but more options and more styles of representation within a constituency and i think this would be a way to preserve the directness of a first past the post system with whilst eliminating the kind of uh, uniformity and the unanimity of a first past the post system because if we were to go to something like party this proportional representation which is of the various kinds probably the best what it would mean is independent candidates who weren't part of a party would be sh- would be shafted and I don't like that because I think that it really should be about a constituency getting to know their candidate over and above the party which they belong to. If they don't belong to any party at all, proportional representation is a huge disadvantage. It so, gives the party leaders
1: also uh, untrammeled power. They have pretty much untrammeled power anyway. Thank you, Blair it and Cameron. gives them uh, absolutely untrammeled power because yeah. they decide who's on the list and in what order.
11: Yeah. And if you were to imagine, look at the Mavericks in both of the main parties in recent years. There were people like Alan Clark and the unrelated Kenneth Clark, two Tory Mavericks from opposite ends of the Tory party. And look at Labour, where you've had people like Dennis Skinner. And you, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Before there was Jeremy Corbyn, there was Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I think that that's sort of a factor that people Why forget. Why do you
1: dislike him so much, Jerry O'Neill asks?
11: The reason I dislike him, it's to do, I dislike the policy of labor because I'm not a labor man, so that goes without saying. But the more interesting reason is again this matter of style, of language, of tone. I like a politician who's tough, and by tough, I don't mean that they could go up against Mike Tyson and have him crying in the corner. I mean rhetorically tough. I mean tough and robust in the defense of coherent and simple, straightforward positions. With Jeremy Corbyn, it's all ooing and owing, it's all very soft soft-spoken. It's all very frankly dismal. He speaks like an undertaker in pursuit of the hearse. And no matter what anyone thinks of it, I think the, the, there'd be a lot of people out there who just don't like it at a stylistic well, he, he's level. Well,
1: he's not a great speaker, uh, but neither is Joe Swinson, and, ni- <laughs> and neither is Boris Johnson, as it turns out. Well, so Boris... if it's a contest uh, about who's a good speaker, uh, he won't necessarily be in second place on that.
11: Yeah, the problem with Boris is he's a- Serious. He's not necessarily the most linear speaker, but he is an entertaining speaker, which is certainly half the battle. Swinson is just a bit shrill. Uh, I don't even know who the leader of the Green Party is, which shows you how much I care about that. Um, As for um, the other parties, again, I've criticized his tactics and will do so again, but Nigel Farage is good in a debate. He is good on a platform. Uh, He's not necessarily the most poetic speaker, but he certainly hammers the nail, which, frankly, Corbyn can't, Boris can't in an interview situation, and I think that if one were to say the word nail and hammer to Swinson, the Liberal Democrats would call me some sort of racist, <laughs> uh, because, obviously, people who hammer nails aren't the kind of people that vote Liberal Democrat.
1: James, thanks a lot uh, for your call. Uh, Clayton is from uh, Wisbeach Let's hear from Clayton. Go ahead, Clayton.
4: Hi, George, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you.
4: Yeah, uh, so just to give you a bit of context, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Labour voter, Labour supporter, but I never voted or supported Labour prior to Jeremy Corbyn, because against neoliberalism, and I didn't like the centrist uh, Labour party, who was far too far centrist for me, because I'm on the left. Okay. I voted Leave, I'm a Leave voter, um, But I do believe that the best way to get Brexit done and the best form to get Brexit done is to vote Labour and to have a second referendum. And the reason I say that is because I don't see that Parliament can adequately get through a Leave bill without a second referendum. And I believe a second referendum would vote Leave. And I just think that people being scared to vote Labour because they think it's a Remain option... I I just, I'm not going with it. I honestly believe that a Labour deal with a Labour government and the second referendum is the way to go.
1: And how do you think your neighbours and workmates uh, feel about that? I mean, you're presumably worried about the fact that a very significant number of them appear to be unpersuaded of that view.
4: No, uh, the problem is, is I, I do think that the Brexit issue is affecting people. And it's affecting them to vote um, way to the right of what they should be voting
1: and voting for. Oh, we've lost that call. Clayton, uh, thanks uh, for it. You got your point across very well. Uh, Donald Trump still in the lead, 56. Uh, Emmanuel Macron creeping up at 35. And Boris Johnson at 9. The hairspray. Um, I'd stay clear of central London because there may be a mist. because all... Uh, All three of them might well be uh, pressing the button.
11: What will Extinction Rebellion say? What will they have
1: to say about this? (laughs) Sue from Stafford says, I was shocked to find that the BBC showed that interview with Prince Andrew. Considering everything else, they won't talk about. Then it occurred to me that it benefits the elitists because along with other disgraces, it's distracting marvellously from what the British justice system is doing to Julian Assange. What is Adam's take on this idea? Well, mine is, uh, to be candid, Sue, that you're attributing far too much strategic (laughs) skill to our rulers. Uh, We're not ruled by James Bonds. We're ruled by Austin Powers. Adam.
11: Well, there's several things there. First of all, I do think that the interview is a distraction, but not from Julian Assange, because in order to be distracted from something, you need to have previously focused on it, and no one in England, in Britain, is focusing on Julian Assange, sadly. Um, But I think it's a distraction from some of these other elites who are frankly more powerful in the political and financial world than the Duke of York ever has been. Think the Clintons, think Mandelson. And so, frankly, they threw the least political of all of Epstein, Friends under the bus. That's my take. Getting back to Assange, though, uh, we should be thinking of Assange on this day of all days, because Assange is a publisher, a journalist, a speaker, an activist. Even if you hated everything WikiLeaks published, you wouldn't be afraid to pass him by walking down London Bridge. And yet, he's in indefinite imprisonment in one of the most gruesome prisons in this country designed for terrorists, and yet these liberal judges let the actual terrorist out to kill people. So let's just look at look at it from an objective point of view, forgetting your thoughts on Julian Assange, who I happen to think is a hero of free speech, but forgetting that. Do, who would you rather walk next to on a bridge, in a, sit next to in a restaurant, come across in a dark alley, Julian Assange or the filthy terrorist whose name I won't even say. That says everything one needs to know about the state of injustice.
1: Bravo, maybe the best statement you've ever made, uh, uh, Adam. Let's go to Nicola in Swindon. Go ahead, Nicola. Hello,
8: I've seen you lately, you've, you've tweeted quite a lot about, you know, Colby is not gonna win, we're wasting our time following him because he's not the right leader of the Labour Party. Uh, well, and on yet- the
1: latter point, I've never said any such thing. But the first point, you're right. Go ahead.
8: Well, you're right, but, you know, if you do you not find that's a bit demoralizing for Labour voters? Well, they well might it depends be- if
1: you think I'm a liar or not. It depends if you think it's my job to lie to you and tell you that Corbyn is going to win.
8: But, you know, he's if, if someone you sat next to in the House and do you not have any sort of loyalty and I think, I mean, Excuse you, me? You, you know, do, I, you...
1: do I not have any sense of loyalty? Are you actually having a... Win? And I don't do lies. That's why you followed me all these years. That's why you're a regular caller, a, regular, a communicator uh, with me. So it, it may be demoralizing to you. It may be demoralizing to me. But I'm not going to tell you something that I don't believe to be true. And it would be a lie if I told In facts, in politics, I believe in the Lord without question and with absolute faith. But I don't believe in Jeremy Corbyn. Even if I think Lewis in, uh, in Norwich or Ipswich, wherever he is, unlike all these other commentators, uh, the luxury communists, I'm the only person that stood up to defend him from the charge of anti-Semitism. I'm even doing it to my own detriment on the streets of the West Midlands on a daily basis. Be gone with you, Nicola. You've got me angry. Sean is in Stevenage. Go on, Sean. <laughs> Good evening, George. Can, Good can evening. You calm down while I ask my you blood's, question, My then. blood's up. Go on. I, I can
17: tell. <laughs> Wicked show, mate, wicked show. Me and the missus watch every week. I've Thanks. even got my missus interested in politics Excellent. You.
1: I'm very, very glad to hear it. Uh,
17: given your comments this evening, you were talking to that emeritus professor, I forget his name, and given what you and Adam were talking about and, and your statistic that 49% of working-class people are going to vote Conservative.
1: And, and only 17 are going to vote Labour. Uh, yeah, yeah.
17: Uh, I mean, uh, it's disparate. Is there not now a case to say, right... We need to reorganise the Labour on a working class basis, remember what it was uh, built for, what it stands for, and taking Adam's comment earlier about clear message from politicians, telling the truth, talking with integrity, and just relaunch this. I'll I'll give Jeremy his due. He's brought half a million or increased membership to half a million people, Uh, which is is quite remarkable. It's a great achievement, yeah, yeah. It is. But his performance has left me, because I am a Labour voter, but I voted Leave. I still believe in Leave, um, for various reasons, because I looked at what had happened in Greece. I believe in privatisation of natural monopolies and the nat- in the national infrastructure run for the benefit of the country. And you can't really do that when you're in the EU. Uh, Sean, are we actually rule brothers
1: rule. from another mother? <laughs> <laughs> every syllable know, like, <laughs> of every word you've said is exactly what I believe. but I'm
17: thinking i
1: grasp the nettle and say Jeremy
17: if you're not going to kick all these hundred plus odd MPs that think they can still live in Tony Blair's dream world of living on the coattails of Tories, go and be Tories, go away and let's get back to what the vast majority of working class people want for this country which is a country which is run as much for their benefit in fact
1: more for their that speaks directly to the working class A party which supports and positively embraces Brexit. A party which is economically and politically radical, but which is socially traditional. Which runs with the grain of British society rather than damning British society with a whole string of isms and epithets uh, designed to uh, denigrate them. A party which rejects identity politics. A party which rejects liberalism. A party which rejects skiism and extreme ultra-leftism. A party that is in the tradition of uh, the likes of uh, the late Mr. Ben, uh, Mr. Foote, Mr. Shore, Mrs. Castle, and so on. I intend to create such a party, and very, very soon, uh, Sean. And you sound like just the sort of chap who ought to join us
12: all leaders mm. on the programme, on the TV on Friday. A man from Bristol... If it Bristol, wasn't
1: an, a politically incorrect, I would have said it was a seven dwarves debate. But go ahead. <laughs> well, Baker. yeah,
12: go on. A man from Bristol sent in a question, said, would you use nuclear weapons to defend us if a nuclear attack was due? Mm. Now, the SNP said no, categorically. Pride, Cymru said no. Green said no. Lib Dems, yes, Tory, yes, Labour, if necessary. But my point is, if there was a first strike, would we want to blow up millions? Or if we'd been attacked and we wanted to attack back, we might not be able to. And the argument, really, that the people who want to retain Trident has always been a deterrent. In other words, it won't be used. Uh, but, you know, do to really, to people really understand the danger of these weapons? And if they were used, you know, it would probably be near the end of the world.
1: Well, it would be the end of the world. Of course, if we were launching our missiles, it could only be, presumably, uh, because others had launched nuclear missiles at us. We are a small island. Uh, we would be incinerated in moments and would no longer exist. So any retaliation? would be the very definition of Pyrrhic. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, interested in uh, nuclear weapons, but I'm interested in our defense. I'd rather use, as indeed several admirals of the fleet want to do, and other commanders, former commanders of the British Armed Forces, I'd rather use the hundreds of billions of pounds expended on Trident, which isn't, by the way, independent at all. You could not fire it without the... Can, uh, from Stephen, I think, uh, perhaps not Stephen, earlier in the show, uh, we need to have a proper Navy defending us as an island, and we can build our own ships without going out to tender once we've left the European Union, and we should do so. We need frigates, we need warships patrolling our war currently have to defend ourselves at home. They need to be properly paid, properly resourced, properly armed, properly clad, properly housed, their families looked after properly. That's what I'd rather do with the money we're wasting on Trident. Uh, thank you, as always, Norma. We only had one woman caller again indeed for joining us from Adam and myself. A very good night to you all. And spread the n-